Remember back in episode one, how I said I was going to tell you the story of a girl whose name you probably had never heard? Well, today I'm going to tell you a story about a lot of women and girls whose names you probably have never heard. A lot of indigenous women and girls who have passed away under mysterious and possibly similar circumstances, but whose stories have been ignored by mainstream media, brushed under the rug, largely kept out of sight and out of mind. I've been into true crime since middle school. I mean, of course I'm not into true crime, but I've been fascinated by the genre of true crime in the way that thousands of people are for most of my life. And so, When I started looking into these cases, back in the beginning when there were just a few cases, I wondered about a serial killer. And so, as these bizarre deaths of Native women continued to happen, I started to log the details. That log pretty soon became a map and a timeline. But before we get into those details, I want to start this episode with the part that would usually go at the end. Because in this episode, I'm going to tell you about a lot of Indigenous women and girls who tragically passed away between 2017 and 2023, under circumstances which, in my humble and amateur opinion, are eerily similar, and eerily similar to what happened to Selena Not Afraid, and all equally mysterious. But As we move through the details of each case, the similarities and differences between the circumstances and between each victim, I want to make sure it is never lost on us, in all the enigmatic details, that at the heart of these stories are the lives that have been stolen and the broken hearts left behind. You're going to hear a lot of stories in this episode, and the memorial to these women and girls who we're going to talk about the part where we hear from their families and we learn a little about their lives, it doesn't belong sandwiched at the end like some kind of afterthought, but rather first things first. So, before we get into the episode, let me tell you a little about who we will be talking about. 36-year-old Bonnie Three Irons was tragically found deceased on the Crow Reservation in April of 2017. Bonnie was a mother of six children. She is remembered as being caring and protective, and had an especially close relationship with her own mother, who has been raising Bonnie's children since her death. And Henny Scott was only 14 years old when she was found dead on the nearby Northern Cheyenne Reservation in 2018. Henny, whose Cheyenne name is 20 Stands Woman, loved to play basketball, and did well in school. She had dreams to be a doctor someday. And Kaysera Stops Pretty Places was a baby, too. She had just turned 18 less than a month before she went missing and was later found dead in Hardin in August of 2019. Kaysera is remembered as a talented athlete and performer, as well as a fiercely loving big sister. Jade Wagon was a 23-year-old mother of two who was found dead near the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming in January of 2020. 
Jade herself became an advocate for missing and murdered Indigenous women after her own sister, Jocelyn Watt, was murdered. And Jade is remembered as adventurous, loving, and devoted both to her Catholic faith and traditional Native ways. 28-year-old Cheryl Tiara Long Soldier was found deceased on the Pine Ridge Reservation in February of 2022. Cheryl, whose Lakota name was Red Lightning Woman, was a mother of three and is remembered as a loving mother and auntie, and for her joyful personality. Shana, young man afraid of his horses, also found dead on the Pine Ridge Reservation in February of 2022, was only 17 years old. She was deeply loved by her tight-knit family, and is especially missed by her little nieces and nephews who lost a favorite auntie. 24-year-old Chelsea Poorman was found dead in Vancouver in April of 2022. Chelsea is remembered for her strength and resilience as she lived with permanent disabilities after being hit by a truck in 2014. Chelsea was close with her mom and sisters, who kept up a diligent search and never gave up on finding her when she went missing. Tatiana Harrison, 20 years old, also went missing in Vancouver. She was found in May 2022 on a yacht in a marina in an area called Richmond, right on the border of Vancouver city limits. Tatiana Harrison is remembered as a deeply compassionate and loving person. She was especially close with her mother, and at only 20 years old, had so much life to live. And then Noelle Osoup was only a baby at 14 years old when she was found dead in a single-room apartment unit in the downtown Eastside neighborhood of Vancouver in May of 2022. Noelle was the youngest in her family and the only girl with five older brothers. At the time of her death, she went by the nickname Ellie, but her name Noelle has special meaning as she was born on Christmas. And just a block away from where Noelle was found, another indigenous woman was found dead. She was 25 years old, and her name was Quem Manuel Gottfriedson. Well, Quem was her nickname, but I couldn't find any audio of anyone saying her full name out loud, and I don't want to butcher it. But anyway, there is very little media coverage about Quem's case, and I couldn't find her obituary. So it seems that her family might prefer privacy, but undoubtedly, Quem is deeply missed and loved. Tristan Raven-Job was found deceased at a golf course in a town called Creighton in northern Saskatchewan in October of 2022. She is remembered as an intelligent girl since childhood, as well as outgoing and loving. She was 25. Justine Siwap was 31 years old when she was found dead in Flin Flon, Manitoba in October of 2022. Justine is missed by her large family. She was especially close with her siblings and cousins growing up, and is missed by many nieces and nephews. She was also a talented singer. And the last woman we're going to talk about is named Kara Fosnouf. 
She was 27 years old when she was found dead in Flin Flon, in her own garage, in January of 2023. Kara was a loving mother of three and is remembered as being both diligent and hardworking, with a fun and free-spirited side. And before we start the episode, I want to tell you that you're not going to hear the regular intro, so please don't press that skip button. Because what you're about to hear is a short montage of clips from local news, other media, and the voices of every victim's family member that I could find. Because this is a true crime podcast, but it's a different kind of true crime podcast. This is a true crime podcast where the true crime comes second, and honoring the lives and families of victims will always come first and foremost. So, with all that said, let's get into the montage, and then we'll start talking about each of these mysterious deaths, and the reasons as I see them, to believe they might share some similarities. Can you tell us a little bit about Bonnie? How would you like her to be remembered? She had six beautiful children. She worked very hard. It was always what they needed. And tonight we continue our coverage of the death of Henny Scott. She's a baby. She's only 14 years old. You didn't know her, you'd want to know her. Well, little information surrounds the passing of Kaysera stops pretty places. Today we shouldn't be standing here. Kaysera should be in school. We can't be burying our children. We should be living a life longer than them. They should live past us. We shouldn't be burying our children. In 2017, I buried two daughters, eight months apart, so I know how it feels. We still can't believe that this is happening. We love your daughter so much. Things got worse when Jade came up missing almost a year to the day after her sister's death. She was later found dead with police ruling her cause of death as accidental as so many other Indigenous women before her. She had kids. She had a family that cared for them. So we tried you know, we posted on what we were able to. Nobody cared. Two women were found dead in the span of a week on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Cheryl Tia Long Soldier and Shayna Youngman, afraid of his horses. She was really an outgoing person. <laughs> She's really goofy. <laughs> She's like the life of the party. <laughs> Protesters are calling for justice. They say the three cases of indigenous women who died in Metro Vancouver have been neglected by the police. My daughters and I want answers. But right now we're, we're going to focus on taking what's left of her home. I just feel that all of these levels of government and agencies, they failed her. And now you're gone. They deserve basic human dignity. And you decide she wasn't worth that. We want justice for my daughter because she deserves that at the very least. She went through so much trauma. She overcame so much. But to end up like this is not right. 
The family of a Flin Flon woman found dead earlier this week is questioning what happened. RCMP say Kara Fossenov's death appears not to be criminal, but the family does not agree. This is the third death of an Indigenous woman in three months in this area that has been brushed off. Tristan Ravenjob, Justine Sewa, and Kara Fossenov. Kara was loved. Kara is sacred and her children are now going to grow up without her. All of our people have systemically been targeted. We know all of this. My name is Emma Jane and this is Out of Sight, Missing and Murdered. For our first case, let's jump back to April of 2017, a night when 36-year-old Bonnie Three Irons was at home with her family. Bonnie was a mother of six, with her kids ranging in age from toddler to teen at this time, and she lived in Hardin, which, if you'll remember, is the small town right on the border of the Crow Reservation where Selena Not Afraid went to high school. At this time, Bonnie was living in a house with her kids, as well as her own mother, Jennifer. Bonnie was last seen on a Thursday night in early April. And looking back, I'm guessing it was April 7th, but give or take a little. Because understandably, of course, with the trauma of everything, Bonnie's mom couldn't quite recall the exact date that she last saw her daughter alive. But regardless of the exact date, Bonnie's mom, Jennifer, said that the last time she saw her daughter alive, it seemed like a perfectly normal night. The family was all at home, Bonnie, Jennifer, and the kids, and it was getting late. Jennifer was getting ready to go to sleep, and so were Bonnie's younger kids. So Jennifer agreed to stay home and put the kids to sleep with her so that Bonnie could go out with friends for a bit. And what you're about to hear is the voice of Bonnie's mom, Jennifer, telling me more about the last time she saw her daughter alive, that night that Bonnie went out in mid-April. I, I told her that I had to go to work, and when I go to sleep, I, I put the baby to sleep with me. She called the babies, and she gave them both a kiss and a hug, and... I told her, don't forget, you have to watch the baby tomorrow while I work. She gave me a hug and a kiss, and she said, I'll be here, Mom. I'll, I'll be here. I love you. Go to sleep. But Bonnie wasn't home the next morning to take her kids to school. And while Jennifer was concerned, because that was not normal for Bonnie... She also tried not to panic right away. For one reason, because Bonnie was picked up by the people she went out with that night, so she would have been depending on them for a ride back. Bonnie also didn't have a phone. And Jennifer said that when Bonnie went out with this group of people, sometimes they would drive to Billings to visit an aunt, and sometimes plans would change unexpectedly, like they would run out of gas or there would be car trouble and Bonnie would end up stuck in Billings until she could find another ride back. And without a phone to call her mom and let her know, I can see why Jennifer didn't want to hit the panic button that very morning. So Jennifer got the kids ready for school, 
went to work herself and expected that Bonnie would probably be home by the time the school day was over. But Bonnie wasn't. As I mentioned, the night that Bonnie was last seen alive leaving her house, it was a Thursday. And by the time Saturday night came around, with no sign of Bonnie and no word from her, Jennifer, as well as Bonnie's older kids, knew for sure that something was up. So Sunday morning, they all started to search for Bonnie, any place they thought she might have been. And as her family was out searching for her, Jennifer repeatedly called and messaged the people Bonnie left with that night to see if she was still with them or where they had last seen her. No answer. She couldn't get a hold of anyone who was with Bonnie that night. Not until that next day, by which time Jennifer was completely desperate. After searching all weekend, Bonnie's mom absolutely knew that something bad must have happened by that Monday morning. And she went to the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or BIA, office to report Bonnie missing. The BIA are the primary law enforcement on the Crow Reservation. And according to Jennifer, the cops that day did not seem to take her report especially seriously. Here she is. Um, they said maybe she'll come home, maybe she's like every other child. They like to go hang out with their friends, just give it a day or two, and I think it's been like this all weekend, I can't. I can't leave any longer. I, I begged and I prayed to the cop to find her. You'll come to see how common that is when an indigenous person goes missing. But anyway, it wasn't until Jennifer was at the police station that finally, after who knows how many unanswered calls and messages, Jennifer's phone rang. And it was one of the people who was with Bonnie on the night she went missing, finally returning Jennifer's calls. And she had a puzzling story about where Bonnie was and what had happened to her. Here's Jennifer. I asked her where my daughter was. She said the last time they saw her was at Wolf Mountain and she walked away from the vehicle that she had gotten into a fight. She said, I waited for her, and she wouldn't come back. And then I seen a car leave, so I thought she was with them, and she left. I told her, you know she will never get in a vehicle that she just bought somebody. So, apparently, the story Jennifer was told was that Bonnie and the people she was last with went out to the mountains after she headed out that night. Which, from my observation, and I'm not trying to make any kind of blanket statement, but just from my observation, that is kind of a thing with reservation communities. People party and hang out in the mountains regularly, so just a note for context. So again, from Jennifer's recollection, she was told that Bonnie and that group of friends went to go hang out at the mountains that night, and a fight broke out. I asked Jennifer if she knew what the fight was about, and she said that she thinks it was that whoever Bonnie had fought with that night had said something about Bonnie's kids, which is what triggered her. But anyway, 
I guess somehow, in the commotion after the fight, Bonnie did not get into a vehicle when everyone was leaving, and so she was just left out in the mountains alone. Which, on its face, is about as confusing as how Selena Not Afraid went missing. Bonnie supposedly being left out in the mountains alone after a fight makes as little sense as Selena supposedly being left behind at a rest area after some kind of a fight. Especially considering how it allegedly took days for anyone to even let Bonnie's mom know that that's what happened. I mean, why would someone not have called right away to let Jennifer know that Bonnie was stranded and needed to be picked up? But at that moment, Bonnie's mom probably didn't have time or energy to be confused or try to piece together the exact events of that night. At that point, I would imagine, Jennifer had just received the first breadcrumb of any kind of a lead and had to jump into action right away for any hope of finding Bonnie alive. Since Jennifer was at the police station when she got this call, she was able to convince a couple of BIA cops to follow her out to the spot in the mountains where she was told that Bonnie was left. But when I asked Jennifer if the police helped the family search, here's what she said. They always just sit there and sit in their rides and fall asleep. or That's their police department. So they came out, but they just kind of, they just sat in the car. Yeah. We have um, a sad excuse for a police department. You have what? I'm sorry. A sad excuse for a police department. Which, yeah, from my understanding, that sounds about right. A sad, sad excuse for a police department. So the majority of the search for Bonnie was conducted by Jennifer other members of Bonnie's family, and volunteers from the community. Jennifer told me that the search would meet up at a set spot every morning, the spot in the mountains where it is said that Bonnie was left behind. Jennifer had a map, and as she and others went looking in different directions, she would mark on that map which parts of the mountains had already been searched. They would go until dark, and then always meet back up at that same spot the next morning to make a game plan for the day. And after a week, Bonnie's body was found by a searcher, but not in the way you might expect. Here's another clip from the conversation I had with Jennifer. So then you went, um, the cop followed you to Wolf Mountains. Is that um, the day that you found Bonnie? No, we searched Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and we found her Friday at the same place we start looking every day. Somebody had to have put her there. So, does that kind of sound familiar to you? How Bonnie went missing? And then for her to be found allegedly out in the open, in a place that was thoroughly searched, a highly conspicuous place, as if to draw attention on purpose. And just like with Selena, it was determined that Bonnie's cause of death 
was accidental hypothermia. We're going to talk more about Bonnie later in this episode, and just wait because it only gets weirder. But for now, I want to jump ahead to December of 2018 and talk about the disappearance and mysterious death of Henny Scott on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation, less than 100 miles away from Crow. On December 7th, 2018, 14-year-old Henny Scott called her mom after school. She was calling to ask if she could go to a basketball game with friends, but her mom said no, that she was grounded and that she needed to come home. And while I would imagine that any 14-year-old isn't going to be overjoyed to hear that, Henny's mom said that she sounded fine and just said, Okay, Mom, well, I'll be on my way. But Henny never did come home. And that call was the last time Henny's mom would hear her daughter's voice. Just like Bonnie Three Iron's mom did, Henny Scott's family turned to the BIA on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation after the family searched around town for a couple days with no sign of Henny and no word from her. And when Henny Scott's parents went to the BIA office to report Henny missing, they were treated in a similar way to Bonnie Three Iron's mom trying to get police to help her find Bonnie. Henny's parents were treated the way every Indigenous family member I've ever spoken to has been treated by police when trying to report a missing person. Which is to say, just dismissed and brushed off. In this case, even though Henny was only 14, BIA police allegedly told her parents what so many Indigenous families are told when their loved one goes missing. That she's probably just out partying and would be home soon. Here's a clip from an episode of the show Fault Lines, which covered several cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women, including Henny's. In this clip, you'll hear the voice of Henny's mom, Paula, speaking to a journalist named Anjali Kamat about the day she went to the BIA office to file that report. She and her husband, Nathan, went to their local law enforcement, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or BIA, a federal agency. The reason why I was down there is reaching out to them is because I needed help to look elsewhere. And when they told me, you know, did you check her friend's house? Or maybe she's got a new boyfriend, did you check there? Yeah, I checked there. That's why I'm here, because I need more help looking elsewhere. It's not clear where or even if the police searched for Honey, but what Paula and Nathan do know is that an alert wasn't issued for her until two weeks after they reported her missing. So, as you heard in that clip, it was not until December 26th, two weeks after that last phone call Henny had with her mom, that police would even file the missing persons report at all. There was also never an Amber Alert issued for 14-year-old Henny. The only kind of public alert regarding Henny's disappearance that police ever did issue was something called a Missing and Endangered Persons Advisory, or a MEPA alert. But 
That also did not happen until Henny had already been missing for weeks. And then, on December 28th, two days after the MIPA alert was issued and 21 days after Henny went missing, her body was found. She was found in an area of the Northern Cheyenne Reservation called Muddy Creek, laying out in the open 200 yards away from the house where she was last seen alive. Now, if you've listened to past episodes or are familiar with issues related to law in Indian country, you'll know that there is a mess of jurisdictional loopholes when it comes to cases of violent crime on reservations. I won't get into the details of that right now, but I just want to say as far as jurisdiction in this case, because Henny was found within the borders of the Northern Cheyenne Reservation, her case was automatically handled by federal law enforcement. And six months after Henny was found, the feds came out with the results of their investigation into her death. And according to that joint investigation between the BIA and FBI, Henny was actually last seen alive on December 8th, the day after she talked to her mom on the phone. And the report says that Henny was last seen alive leaving a house party in the Muddy Creek area. That's the house where her body would later be found 200 yards away from. And reportedly, Henny left this party alone and on foot without a jacket on this December night. And the report went on to say that, according to the investigation into Henny's death, it was determined that no probable federal crimes were committed in this case. According to the investigation, Henny voluntarily left the party and accidentally froze to death 200 yards away. And somehow, her body lay there unnoticed for 20 days. And with no details released about why Henny might have left that house party on foot and with no jacket, and with no explanation as to how she lay out unnoticed for 20 days, Henny's case was closed with the same three nonsensical words you'll come to hear over and over again in this episode. No foul play. For the sake of time, I can't give you a full deep dive into Henny's case in this episode, but there will be links with more information in the show notes. There are just so many details I want to get to, but also so many stories in this episode. But before we move on, I do want to elaborate on one more detail in Henny's case that might raise some questions about hypothermia as her cause of death. After Henny's case had been closed, her parents still were not satisfied with the results of the investigation. And for reasons that we'll talk about when we get to the next story, Henny's parents also were not confident in the results of her autopsy. So they made the painful decision to have Henny's body exhumed and re-examined by a second forensic expert in hopes of getting one step closer to the truth. And while that second pathologist could not determine Henny's exact cause of death, 
It was determined that there were no indications of insect or animal activity on Henny's body. He also found no bruising, fractures, blunt force trauma, no traces of drugs in Henny's system, and no indication that she had been sexually assaulted. The pathologist who did the second examination is a man by the name of Dr. Cyril Wecht, and I want to read you verbatim what he had to say about Henny's death. He said, quote, She was only 200 yards away from that place where she had been. I'm puzzled why it took 21 days to find her. It is possible that she could have died somewhere else. I don't have an explanation as to what would have caused her death. And personally, I'm also puzzled why it would have taken 21 days to find Henny's body only 200 yards away from that house. Because to get an idea of what 200 yards actually looks like, the average block in the city of Chicago is slightly longer, at 220 yards. So how could Henny freeze to death less than one city block away from the house where she was last seen? And how, less than one city block away from that house, could Henny's body possibly have gone unnoticed for as long as she did. As Dr. Cyril Wecht said, it's puzzling. In my opinion, it's just as puzzling as the idea that the bodies of Bonnie Three Irons and Selena Not Afraid could possibly have been at the spots where they were found, just like Henny, unnoticed and untouched by animals and insects for such long stretches of time. And it's so hard to leave it there, because as I said, there is just so much more to Henny's story. But for now, for the sake of this episode, we have to. And again, there's links to more information in the show notes. So that said, let's jump ahead to August of 2019 and talk about the mysterious death of Kaysera Stops Pretty Places. At the time of her mysterious death, Kaysera Stops Pretty Places had just turned 18. In fact, on the night she went missing, August 24, 2019, Kaysera was going out with some friends to celebrate her birthday. And Kaysera was last seen alive in the early hours of the next day, She and a few others were seen outside a house in Hardin, on Rangeview Drive. And apparently, Kaysera and the others were engaged in some kind of argument, which caused another homeowner on the block to activate his car alarm to try to break them up. And apparently it worked, because when the car alarm went off, everyone took off running in opposite directions and got separated from each other. Kaysera allegedly ran towards a neighbor's backyard, and her friends took off back to Kaysera's aunt's house, where they had all been staying, and figured that Kaysera would be able to get herself home. But Kaysera was never seen alive again. Now, Kaysera had plans with her mom that next day, after going out with friends, to meet up and talk about the details of a vacation they were planning— 
So when Kaysera did not come home that next morning and no one could get a hold of her, her family knew that something was wrong. But once again, police were allegedly quick to dismiss Kaysera's family's concerns. And real quick for jurisdiction purposes, I want to tell you that where Kaysera was last seen alive in front of that house in Hardin is just off the border of the Crow Reservation by less than a mile. Kaysera was a Crow tribal member and had grown up on the reservation, but since she technically did not go missing on tribal land, her case was handled by the Bighorn County Sheriff's Department rather than federal law enforcement. And Bighorn County Sheriff's deputies allegedly turned Kaysera's family away and dismissed their concern when they tried to report Kaysera missing. First, allegedly, her family was told a lie about a mandatory two-day waiting period, which, in fact, does not exist in the state of Montana. And then, even when her family did come back 48 hours later to get the report filed— there's no indication that Bighorn County ever did file that report. For example, it was later found that Kaysera was never entered into a federal database for missing persons. So, once again, it seems to me that Kaysera's family was yet another indigenous family in Montana left to search for their missing loved one without much help from the police. And then, almost a week after she was last seen alive, Kaysera's body was found. Her body was spotted by a passing jogger on the morning of August 29th, reportedly laying face down in a backyard on the same block as the Rangeview Drive house. And just like in the other cases we've talked about so far, there's the question of how Kaysera's body lay out for all those days unnoticed. Because when I say that she was found in a backyard, that probably makes it sound more inconspicuous than it actually was. Because the backyard where Kaysera's body was found is right next to a walking path on a busy street right in the middle of town. So not only is there passing traffic, but also... People are running, walking, and biking on that path all day, every day, especially in the summer. So it raises the question, could Kaysera's body possibly have been laying out in that backyard for so many days unnoticed? And by the account of the jogger who initially saw Kaysera's body, as well as a neighbor who witnessed the aftermath of her body being found, the responding officers that day allegedly mishandled the scene from the start. For example, allegedly, one officer removed Kaysera's phone from her pocket without gloves on and went inside the house with it. The Bighorn County Sheriff's Department later explained this action, saying that the deputy took Kaysera's phone inside to plug it in and use it to contact her family. But bizarre as that explanation is, it never even happened. Nobody called Kaysera's family that day. And in fact, 
It would end up being weeks before Kaysera's family was notified that her body had been found. As I said, Kaysera's body was found on August 29th, but her family didn't find out until September 11th. All that time, Kaysera's body lay unidentified at the Montana State Crime Lab, and all that time, her family kept searching for her. And there's another layer to Kaysera's story that's off-topic from the general point of this episode, but that I don't feel I can leave out. Because there is reason to believe that one of the first responding officers when Kaysera's body was found may have actually been filmed by Kaysera just days before she went missing, committing police brutality. Every August on the Crow Reservation, there's a three-day annual powwow called Crow Fair, and it's a pretty big deal. According to Wikipedia, Crow Fair is currently the largest Native American event in North America, attracting an average of 45,000 people every year. It's a time when many families will reunite with people from out of town come to visit for the fair. All that to say, it's a pretty big event on Crow that happens every August. And it was one of the nights of the Crow Fair back in 2019 that Kaysera filmed several officers beating her 15-year-old brother, possibly including one of the first responding officers to her death. Now, I don't know what happened that night with Kaysera's brother and those cops, but I saw the video still up on Kaysera's personal Facebook page way back in the beginning. And guys, there were at least five cops on this kid who clearly was on the ground. And the cops appear to just be beating the shit out of him. At one point, you see one of these cops on top of him just repeatedly, like, punching down on the kid, like, over and over and over and over, full force. And Kaysera's brother, this 15-year-old boy being beaten by the cops, also happened to be wheelchair-bound at the time this happened. Kaysera went live filming this assault, and she captioned it, Make this shit go viral. Then, days later, she went missing. And according to the website justiceforkaysera.org, quote, There is reason to believe that one of the Bighorn County Sheriff's deputies filmed by Kaysera was a responding officer when her body was discovered. And as I'll tell you in a minute, Kaysera truly was failed by the system in every way. Because it was not just the bad police work that played a part in the handling of her case. There were also major problems with the way Kaysera's body was handled by the Bighorn County coroner at the time, a man by the name of Terry Bullis. So, to get into that, remember, as I said, Kaysera's body was at the state crime lab up until September 11th. At that time, her body was identified based on dental records, and she was sent back to Hardin. And what happened next is so insane and so horrific that I have a hard time even clearly laying it out for you. 
So I want to play for you a clip from episode one of Murder in Bighorn, where you'll hear the voice of Mary Catherine Nagel, an attorney working with Quesera's family, as well as the voice of Luella Brienne, a local Crow journalist who has covered Quesera's story, giving a summary on who Terry Bullis is and what he did to Quesera's body. Terry Bullis is a non-native white man, business owner, who owns a funeral home in Bighorn County. And he also, for a significant period of time, was the county coroner for Bighorn County. He cremated Kaysera's body. The family claims that he cremated her body against the family's wishes. And as their attorney, I filed a complaint against him to have his mortuary license removed. And the Montana commissioners decided not to do it. The Montana Funeral Service Board found that in the Kaysera case, Terry Bullis didn't do anything unlawful, but he didn't ask for authorization in the best way possible. But if Terry Bullis cremates your loved one, that's a pretty big slap in the face because Crow people don't believe in cremating the body. If you're cremated, you're not going to move into the next life. I mean, imagine if you don't believe in cremation as a form of burial and you're forced to do that for your loved one. That is horrifically traumatic. I think the reason there has not been justice in this case is that Kisara is a Native girl. So, yeah. Terry Bullis, the county coroner who worked out of the funeral home that he owned, allegedly cremated the body of Kaysera Stops Pretty Places against the wishes of her family. And how exactly did that happen? Well, we're going to get into it. But before we do, I know that it sounds kind of crazy that a county coroner would do that, and it is. But in the case of Terry Bullis, it was not out of character. So I'm going to tell you more about what he did to Kaysera's body and how he actually had a hand in more than one of the cases we've talked about so far. But first, I want to give you a little history on a similar complaint filed against the same coroner all the way back in 2003 by the grandmother of a local Cheyenne woman named Toy Parker. 21-year-old Toy Parker was killed in a car crash outside of Lame Deer on January 9th, 2002. And according to the complaint, Bullis retrieved Toy's body from the crash, took her back to Bullis Mortuary, and proceeded to embalm Toy's body without consent from her family. And when Toy's family was notified of her death, they wanted a different mortician to handle the proceedings. But here's the thing. Terry Bullis refused to release Toy's body to that other mortician until he was paid an embalming fee of $410 for the embalming that the family never even consented to in the first place. And here's another problem. According to Toy's family, Terry Bullis destroyed evidence by embalming Toy's remains that would later prove to be crucial in the investigation into Toy's death. 
because at first, investigators thought that Toy was alone in the vehicle when it crashed. They would later come to find out that that was not true, and that a man by the name of Christopher Mark Chamberlain was with her. And Christopher Mark Chamberlain later admitted in police interviews that he had been physically struggling with Toy in the car when it crashed. And he also admitted that he had been the one to jerk the steering wheel and cause the vehicle to roll off the road. However, Christopher himself was not seriously injured in the crash, and he was able to leave the scene on foot. So, Toy's death was more suspicious than investigators initially thought. And to quote the Billings Gazette, Parker's family had complained since January that Toy Parker's death was not satisfactorily investigated and that potentially valuable evidence in the case was unavailable because her body was embalmed and no autopsy was performed, end quote. And that same article goes on to say that Bullis said that he did not perform an autopsy on Toy because the investigators did not initially believe Toy's death was suspicious. But it's worth noting that there was no need for Bullis to embalm her body so quickly before getting consent from her family. It was Montana state law at the time that, after 48 hours, a body must be embalmed or refrigerated. But Bullis Mortuary had refrigeration services. And I don't know whether Terry Bullis even waited the 48 hours to try to get in touch with Toy's family. So all that to say, I just want you to get an idea of who Terry Bullis is. And I also want to tell you that in that same Billings Gazette article I've referenced a couple times, another local funeral director by the name of Paul Rausch was quoted. And he said that Bullis routinely embalms bodies without permission and then charges for it. So with that context, let's get back to Kaysera. Now, as I said, after Kaysera's body was identified at the Montana State Crime Lab, she was taken by Terry Bullis to Bullis Mortuary in Hardin. And it was at this time that Terry Bullis, according to several sources, coerced Kaysera's mother into agreeing to allow Kaysera's body to be cremated. But before we get more into that, I just have to say real quick in my opinion, the first problem here is that it's shady that Terry Bullis only contacted Kaysera's mother. Because Kaysera had just turned 18 less than a week before she disappeared. And before Kaysera's recent 18th birthday, her grandmother had actually been her legal guardian. And I don't say that as any shade to Kaysera's mother, please don't get me wrong. Of course, her mother should have been contacted. I just think it goes to show Bullis's bad intentions, that he did not contact Kaysera's grandmother as well. And Bullis also approached Kaysera's mother in an extremely vulnerable moment, right after she found out that her daughter's body had been found. And allegedly, in that vulnerable moment, Bullis told Kaysera's mother that the only way her daughter's remains could be returned to family at all was if she agreed to allow Kaysera to be cremated. And in a moment of desperate shock and grief, painful beyond anything I could imagine, 
Kaysera's mother agreed, even though cremation runs counter to the family's cultural practices. Although, I'm not sure agreed is even the right word when something appears to be so coerced. And it wasn't only Kaysera. The, in my opinion, crooked coroner Terry Bullis actually had a hand in how the body of Bonnie Three Irons was handled as well. And with more on that, here's a clip from an interview that Bonnie's mom Jennifer did with Anita Lucchese from Sovereign Bodies Institute. Every day, for four days we searched, and we always started from that area. And we never found her until that Friday. So we know someone placed her there, especially the way they said they found her. When my brothers, they said they seen her and they were told not to go down there. But when they, all the officers went up, a couple of my brothers went down there and they said they had to creep around the bushes and they went over there and under the fence and they seen my daughter and they said the way that they had put her, it was like they carried her or dragged her and and she was on top of a bunch of branches that were on the ground and she had one shoe and one sock off and her shirt was over her tummy and her hair was mangled and had like tree leaves and branches in it. It was all wrong. It was so wrong in so many ways. When we were, when we came back to Harden, when we were making the arrangements for my daughter's funeral, I asked where her clothes were and he said he had burned them. And that's not right. They were supposed to be for evidence. And that was so wrong. It was like they were trying to cover up something. So not only did Bolas allegedly coerce Kaysera's mother into agreeing to allow Kaysera to be cremated, according to Bonnie Three Iron's mom, he also burned the clothing that Bonnie had been found wearing which her mom is absolutely right, that should have been for evidence. And you guys, I know that these points I'm telling you about Terry Bullis sound improbable, but for more context to back up what Bonnie's mom said happened, I think it's worth noting that Bullis himself is quoted in the Billings Gazette article about Toy Parker's death as saying that he, quote, probably burned the clothing that Toy Parker was wearing as well. So just for a frame of reference. And as far as Henny Scott, well, Terry Bullis did her autopsy too. It really just goes to show how much harm one person in a position of power truly can do to so many people and so many families. Which, remember earlier when I said that Henny's parents were not confident in the results of her autopsy? Well, hearing more about this coroner, I hope you understand why they would have felt that way. 
And in Henny's case, I'm glad that her family, at least, was able to get a second opinion from a more reliable source. And now, if you're wondering why Terry Bullis was not the one to do Selena Not Afraid's autopsy, here's the voice of Selena's Aunt Cheryl Horn, and this is the reason. Okay. No. We wouldn't let Terry Bullis touch her. And you guys, it is so hard to leave it here because there are so many more details in the stories of Bonnie, Kaysera, and Henny that I just couldn't fit into this episode because there are also so many stories we have to get to. But before we move on, I want to share with you what was going through my head when I first started researching about Selena and when that research quickly led me to the stories of Bonnie, Henny, and Kaysera. Now, of course, I'm not an investigator or a profiler. I'm literally not even a college graduate, so I know my opinion means almost nothing here. But for whatever it's worth, in my opinion, the Bighorn County cases appear to share certain similarities. In my opinion, they have enough in common, and I have certainly watched enough true crime that, to be honest, the thought of a serial killer was on my mind all the way from the beginning. But also, based on the information I know about each of the Bighorn County cases, it is kind of hard to say. And that's another common thread throughout this episode when it comes to these suspicious deaths. When there is so little investigation by law enforcement into mysterious deaths of Indigenous women, as you'll come to see in more of these cases, it can be hard to be led by the facts to the most logical conclusion one way or the other. Because without proper investigation, it can be hard to even find or know what the facts are for sure in some of these cases. And in my opinion, with the information I have, the Bighorn County cases are similar enough to be suspicious about certainly. But if it weren't for the story I'm about to tell you, I'm not sure I would even be bringing up the notion of a potential serial killer on this podcast. As I said, the Bighorn County cases have enough in common to be suspicious of, but they're not cookie cutter. But that said, I do want to tell you another story before we leave Bighorn County. The story of a woman who went missing and was found dead in a field actually not in Bighorn County, but on the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming, about a five-hour drive south of Crow. 23-year-old Jade Wagon was last seen alive leaving work at the Wind River Casino. And what shook me about Jade's case is the timing. Because Jade Wagon went missing on January 2nd, 2020, which is the very next day after Selena went missing. And then, on January 21st, 2020, the very next day after Selena's body was found in a field, Jade's body was also found in a field. Jade was found in a field near the town of Ethiet, Wyoming, about 30 miles away from where she was last seen alive. And just like Selena, Jade's cause of death was determined to be accidental hypothermia. 
And you've heard me talk a lot about how there are so many deaths of young Native people in reservation communities, and there are. Way too many Native people die young for a whole host of reasons. But it's not every day that a young, healthy Native woman goes missing, only to be found deceased in a field, seemingly out in the open, weeks later. In fact, to my knowledge, it was not until almost two years after Jade's mysterious disappearance and death that there was another similar story. So, when I heard Jade's story, I just wondered, could that really be a coincidence? Two young indigenous women disappeared and found deceased in a field one day apart from each other. Or could there be a serial killer with a pattern of holding their victim hostage for some length of time and then returning their body to a highly conspicuous location, almost, it seems to me, as if to gloat? And as I said, I was pondering about a potential serial killer when I only knew about Bonnie, Henny, Kesera, and Selena. And not only did Jade's story set off the serial killer red flags in my head about a hundred times stronger, but Jade's story also changed the nature of who or where I thought this serial killer might potentially be. Again, just my amateur opinion, but back in the beginning, with the four cases from southeastern Montana, I remember thinking that Bighorn County is pretty fucked up, right? I mean, no offense to anyone. But between the county coroner as well as the sheriff, whose problematic history we've talked about in past episodes, I wondered if something could be going on behind the scenes. Again, just my speculation at the time, but I found myself wondering if a serial killer could potentially be lurking somewhere in Bighorn County. But then, Jade's case threw me off with that theory, because she did not go missing or was found anywhere near Bighorn County. The reason I grouped her case in here, as I said, is because of the timing. And looking at the angle of a serial killer and the driving distance between Crow and Wind River, hypothetically, it's not impossible for the same person to potentially have been behind each death. And the reason I still find myself wondering about a serial killer, the reason I'm making this episode, is because what I've noticed is that cases like the ones we've talked about so far, cases of mysterious deaths of indigenous women with possible similarities, seem to happen in clusters in different locations. Now, whatever that may mean, I don't know. But in southeastern Montana, there were four such deaths in three years, and then on the Pine Ridge Reservation, two young women were found dead in February of 2022. And then, in the four-month period between late April and early August of 2022, four Indigenous women were mysteriously found dead in Vancouver. And then, in a rural area on the border of northern Manitoba and Saskatchewan, there were three young indigenous women found dead between October 2022 and January of 2023. And those are only the ones I've heard about and kept track of, so who knows how many more similar cases there might be. 
But real quick before we close out this section, I just want to say that just because these suspicious deaths are not exclusive to Bighorn County, that doesn't mean that there are not massive problems going on in Bighorn County. I mean, Bighorn County is unarguably an incredibly dangerous place for Indigenous women and girls, serial killer or not. And there are massive societal problems that contribute to that, and that more people should be talking about, that we'll talk more about on future episodes of this podcast. I guess, just to close out, I want to say that why Bighorn County is so deadly for young Native people might be more of a tragedy, but less of a mystery. We'll come back to this point at the very end of the episode, but I think the biggest serial killer to Indigenous lives is the ongoing genocide that manifests in all kinds of ways, which is what I think might be going on in Bighorn County. No less tragic, no less urgent to be handled, but maybe not a serial killer. And above all else to close out, I want to take a moment to say rest in peace to Bonnie, Henny, Kaysera, Selena, and Jade. These five beautiful young women were all cut off from their lives before they even got a chance to really live them. And that's a tragedy that should never be overlooked. And we should never forget the constant daily heartbreak that each of their families will carry with them for the rest of their lives. We should never forget just how deeply these women and girls are missed. But now, let's jump ahead about two years to February of 2022 on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. And in the month of February 2022, two young Indigenous women were found dead on Pine Ridge. 17-year-old Shayna, young man afraid of his horses, went missing on February 8th, and her body was found on February 12th in an area of the reservation called Manderson. And another woman, 28-year-old Cheryl Tiara Long Soldier, went missing on that same reservation the previous month on January 4th, and her body was found on February 8th in an area near Oglala. Now, as far as the nature of their deaths, these stories from South Dakota are a little different than the others we'll talk about. Because, in one case, there does seem to be some resolution. As far as last reporting, no cause of death has been determined for Cheryl Tiara Long Soldier, and we'll talk more about her case in a minute. But as far as Shayna, young man afraid of his horses, at the time of recording, four people have been charged in Shayna's murder. It's alleged that Shayna was shot to death by 27-year-old Tyson Whiteplume, and three other adults helped cover it up. As of last reporting, the trial for Tyson Whiteplume and the three alleged accomplices in Shayna's murder was set for October 4th of 2023 but I couldn't find any further update. And now, as far as Cheryl Tiara Long Soldier, well, there are just as little answers in her death as we've seen in some other cases. And also, just real quick, it seems to me like Cheryl Tiara often went by the nickname Tia for her middle name. 
So since Selena Not Afraid's aunt is also Cheryl, I'm going to go ahead and refer to Cheryl Tiara Long Soldier by her nickname Tia from here on out. Usually I don't use nicknames, just because I feel like with the context of what we're talking about here on the podcast, it's just more respectful to the victim and the family to use their full name. In this case, I'm just making an exception for clarity. But anyway, as I said, Tia was missing for 36 days before her body was found near Oglala on February 8th. And unfortunately, I just don't have a lot to tell you, because seemingly, there just hasn't been much investigation into Tia's death. But one of Tia's friends, Avril Pulliam, was interviewed by local news. And I want you to hear what she had to say about the nature of Tia's death. You know, I wonder, you know, how long, how long did my friend really sit out there, you know? And why did that person leave her out there? You know, why is it he sitting in jail for this? Why is it he being held responsible for leaving her out there? No phone, no jacket, you know, no vehicle. And for what it's worth, I did find a picture of Tia's memorial on the Facebook page her family runs. I can't verify if this memorial is the exact spot where Tia's body was found, but wherever it is, I can tell you that it looks a lot like where Selena, not afraid, was found. A big, flat, open field. And again, there does not seem to be reason to believe that the deaths of Tia Long Soldier and Shayna, young man afraid of his horses, are connected. In my amateur opinion, they don't share a lot of similarities beyond the timeline and the tragic loss of life. But as I said earlier, I've noticed that for whatever it's worth, the cases I've mapped seem to happen in clusters. As different as their cases seem to be, Tia and Shayna were found on the same reservation within days of each other. And I think that's significant enough to share. But now, I want us all to take a minute to say rest in peace to Tia and Shayna, and to send all the love and respect in the world to each of their families as they grieve and continue to seek answers and justice in the tragic deaths of these two young women. And now, with that, we're going to jump ahead a few months and a few hundred miles to the city of Vancouver in British Columbia in the four months between April and July of 2022. A four-month period where four young Indigenous women were found dead. We'll get into the details of each of these stories, but here's a quick timeline summary just so you can get an idea of the sequence of events. So, on April 22, 2022, the skeletal remains of 24-year-old Chelsea Poorman were found behind a vacant mansion, about two and a half miles away from where she was last seen alive leaving a house party, all the way back on September 6th of 2020. And then, less than a week after Chelsea's body was found, the body of 14-year-old Noelle Osoup was found in an apartment in the downtown Eastside area of Vancouver. Noelle had also been missing for quite some time. She went missing the previous May of 2021 from the group home, where she had been placed by Child Protective Services. And then, the very next day after Noelle Osoup's body was found, 
the body of a 20-year-old woman named Tatiana Harrison was found on a dry-docked yacht in an area just outside Vancouver city limits called Richmond. And then, jumping ahead a few months, on July 30th, the body of 24-year-old Quem Manuel Gottfriedson was found also in the downtown Eastside area, just a block from the apartment where Noelle Osoup's body had been found. So, buckle in, and let's get into each individual story. And we'll start in chronological order with 24-year-old Chelsea Poorman. But first, before we talk about Chelsea's disappearance, I have to tell you about the injuries Chelsea sustained from being hit and almost killed by a truck as a teenager. Chelsea's survival and recovery after the crash was miraculous, but her life going forward was not without challenges. Chelsea lived with physical conditions, which, according to family, greatly impacted Chelsea's day-to-day life. And for more on that, I want to read you part of an article from the Vancouver Sun with more information on Chelsea's life and her death. A link to that article, written by Lori Colbert, will be in the show notes. And the article says, quote, Her family was proud Chelsea graduated from high school, but had no idea she would face a far greater challenge just a few months later. In September 2014, she was walking along a highway after leaving a friend's house when she was hit by a large truck. Chelsea's mom, Sheila Poorman, recalled, When I was talking to the doctor, he said that he just about lost her a few times on the operating table. He said she's quite the fighter. It's a miracle, he said, that she made it through. Chelsea suffered a fractured skull, a shattered arm that was left permanently disabled, and two badly broken legs in which metal rods were inserted. Doctors were unsure she would walk again. But Chelsea didn't take that as an answer. She was like, I'll be able to do it, her sister recalled. She just stayed positive throughout the whole thing. She relearned to walk with a brace on one leg, and wearing a shoe with a lift on the other leg, which had lost some length during the surgeries. Now, that's the end of the excerpt, but the article goes on to detail just how challenging Chelsea's physical condition was. For example, Chelsea's sister is quoted as saying that while Chelsea could walk independently with the help of braces, it would take her an average of 20 minutes to walk just two blocks. And keep that in mind, because it will be important later in the story. But anyway, back in September of 2020, when Chelsea was last seen alive, she didn't know very many people in Vancouver. She had just moved to town to be closer to her mom and sister and for mental health reasons to try to better her life. And on the night of September 6th, Chelsea and her sister went out. After having dinner together at a place in the downtown Eastside area, known for craft beer and locally sourced food called the Alibi Room, Chelsea and her sister went to a party at Chelsea's sister's friend's apartment. And once inside, Chelsea and her sister got into a disagreement, and Chelsea ended up leaving alone on foot. After searching the building and surrounding area with no sign of Chelsea, her sister later got a text from her at 12.57 a.m., in which Chelsea said that she was meeting up with, quote, a new bae. And that's the last time anyone ever heard 
from Chelsea. Chelsea and her sister went out on Labor Day Sunday, and when Chelsea didn't come home, and nobody could get a hold of her, and her phone appeared to be off all day on Monday, her family knew that something was wrong, and they tried to report her missing that next day. But, once again, police seemingly dismissed Chelsea's family and didn't take them seriously. Because it would end up being 10 days before Vancouver police would even put out a public bulletin that Chelsea was missing. Meaning, for that crucial first 10 days, Chelsea's picture was not seen on the news, and the police were not searching for her. According to that same Vancouver Sun article, a sergeant from Vancouver PD by the name of Steve Addison was contacted about the 10-day waiting period. And while he would not give specific details on Chelsea's case, the article says, quote, In his email, Addison said that before making a public appeal in any missing person's case, police must consider the person's privacy and whether publicity will make them more prone to self-harm or less likely to seek help, end quote. But here's what Chelsea's mom, Sheila Poorman, had to say in response to that. She said, quote, They said it had to do with her safety, which I didn't understand, because I told them many times that she was vulnerable, and they were just dismissive of that, end quote. And she's right, in my opinion. I understand that the missing person's safety and their mental state needs to be taken into account, I also understand that Chelsea was an adult, so there are different protocols. But I do agree that in this case, Chelsea's physical disabilities should have been taken into account as far as how urgently her disappearance should have been handled by police. In my opinion, this 10-day waiting period is completely unacceptable. But it seems to me at least that Chelsea Poorman is yet another missing Indigenous woman brushed under the rug by the system of quote-unquote justice in colonial society. Because it was not just the first 10 days. In fact, for the next 20 months, Chelsea's family was basically left high and dry by police to search for Chelsea on their own. And on April 22nd, that search would come to a tragic end when Chelsea's skeletal remains were found behind a vacant mansion in a Vancouver neighborhood called Shaughnessy, about two and a half miles away from downtown Eastside, where Chelsea was last seen. But one thing to note is that it would actually take two weeks from the time Chelsea's body was found on April 22nd for her family to know for sure, because Chelsea's remains were not identified until May 6th which I can understand might be because of the advanced level of decomposition. As I mentioned, Chelsea's remains were skeletal by the time she was found. But as Chelsea's mother pointed out in interviews, Chelsea could have been identified by the clothing she was wearing or by the permanent hardware in her body, those two rods put in her leg after the accident that I mentioned earlier. So as you're about to hear, things in Chelsea's case only get weirder and This delay in identifying her body might seem like a small point in comparison, but I still think it's worth noting. But anyway, let's talk more about where exactly Chelsea was found and the explanation Vancouver PD gave as to what caused her death. 
The house Chelsea's body was found behind is, as I mentioned, vacant, and has been for years. Reportedly, the owner of the house lives overseas. And it's not just your average house. The mansion, which Chelsea's body was found behind, is estimated at a value of $7 million. Also, the area of Vancouver, where the house is located, called Shaughnessy, is an extremely affluent area. It's the richest neighborhood in Vancouver and among the richest areas in all of Canada. Which, on its own, doesn't really mean much, I guess, in Chelsea's case, or I'm not sure what it means. And I promise I'm not being classist or trying to make some kind of shady implication about Chelsea or about Native women or Native people by mentioning this. It's not like a weird dog whistly way to say, like, well, what was this Native woman doing in this rich white neighborhood? I mean, obviously she didn't put herself there. I promise it's not that at all. But this context about Shaughnessy and the mansion, just keep it in mind, put a pin in it for later in the episode, because as we move through the rest of the stories, I will explain more about why I brought it up. But anyway, Chelsea's body was actually found by a contractor who was visiting the property as part of ongoing renovations. And you guys, get this. As I said, Chelsea's body was found in the backyard of the house, And that backyard is gated with a tall hedge as well as a metal fence with a locked gate. And not only was Chelsea found in the backyard, her body was found on the back porch right outside the door. And her body was found laying underneath a blanket. And then, just two weeks after her body was found, at the same time her body was identified, Vancouver PD had already labeled Chelsea's death as, quote, not suspicious. What police determined to have happened in Chelsea's case is they say that she walked from the downtown Eastside area where she left that party to the house in Shaughnessy and scaled the fence to get herself into that backyard. And they say that she likely passed away in that backyard on the same day she went missing, or maybe the day after, of exposure. However, an official cause of death was never determined for Chelsea, and it's unclear whether a toxicology report was ever conducted. And it's like I said with the Bighorn County cases. This episode is just so hard, because for the sake of time, I can't give you a deep dive into every single detail in the case of Chelsea Poorman. But just like with the Bighorn County cases, In my opinion, at least, it seems pretty obvious, just from this surface-level information in Chelsea's case, that the police narrative does not add up. Because, as we've talked about, Chelsea had severe physical limitations. She also did not have a car, and didn't have a lot of friends in Vancouver yet, who might have picked her up after she left the party. So, given her conditions, Chelsea's family questions how it would have been physically possible for her to walk the two and a half miles from downtown Eastside to Shaughnessy, let alone scale a fence to climb into that backyard. And Chelsea's family also questions how her body was not found sooner. Because on three occasions during the time that Chelsea was missing, city inspectors and contractors had visited the property. 
On August 11th, 2021, to check on tree protection barriers, April 12th for a drive-by inspection, and April 13th to meet with the site contractor. In each case, nothing suspicious was seen. Now, the house was vacant, so of course the backyard was overgrown at this time. And it's possible that maybe those inspections just didn't involve anyone walking past the area of that back porch where Chelsea's body was found. But again, it's not like Chelsea was found laying in the midst of overgrown grass and weeds in the backyard. As I said, she was on the deck right next to the door and under a blanket. Which, that blanket is another strange element of how Chelsea was found. Because how does that blanket fit into the police narrative of a quote-unquote non-suspicious accidental death? And what investigators also failed to explain is why it was later found that a large part of Chelsea's skull, as well as several of her fingers, were missing. Chelsea's phone and ID were also not found with her body, even though she seemingly had them with her when she left that party. It all just begs the question of how Chelsea's death could possibly be considered not suspicious by Vancouver PD, especially after almost no investigation. And on that same point, Here's a clip of an MMIW advocate named Gerilyn Webster speaking at a rally held in support of Chelsea and the Poorman family outside of the Shaughnessy house. And take a listen to how she feels Vancouver PD has impacted the Poorman family, as well as the greater Indigenous community in Vancouver. VPD, you need to respect the Poorman family when you said her case is not suspicious, is hurtful and harmful to our people. VPD needs to apologize to our relatives, the poor man family. VPD barely even looked. It was our people, our way as Indigenous people, our strength as Indigenous people. You know who is suspicious? VPD. And I agree. Chelsea's story is only the first in Vancouver, but already, in my opinion, Vancouver PD does look sus as hell. And it only gets worse with the other cases I'm going to tell you. But before we get there, to close out Chelsea's story, of course, I want to say rest in peace to such a beautiful and resilient young woman. Chelsea had her whole life ahead of her, and a family behind her, who clearly loved her more than anything. She deserved to be more of a priority to police when she went missing, and the investigation into her death should be more of a priority now. Chelsea deserves justice, and her family deserves answers. I'm sorry that I don't have more answers to share with you on this podcast. But with all the love and respect to Chelsea and the Poorman family— Let's move on and talk about the tragic case of a young girl named Noelle Osoup, who was also found dead in Vancouver. 14-year-old Noelle Osoup went missing back in May of 2021, a year before her body was found. 
She went missing from a group home where she had been placed. And as far as how Noelle spent that last year of her life and how her body came to be found in an apartment in downtown Eastside, it's mostly a mystery to me. But what I do know is that how Noelle ended up in that group home from which she went missing is a story all too familiar when it comes to Indigenous children and the child, quote-unquote, welfare system. And it's a story that I think is important to talk about on this podcast. Because before Noelle became one of far too many Indigenous women and girls to go missing, Noelle was one of far too many Indigenous children to be placed in a group home or outside foster family when they had members of their own family who were ready and able to take them in. Noelle is one of far too many Native children to die or go missing in state custody when they should not have been there in the first place. This happens in the United States, too, but it's especially bad in Canada. Hashtag Protect ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act. Google that, too. It's really important. But anyway, to stay on topic here with Noelle's story, she had an uncle and an aunt who had been in touch with child services repeatedly, trying to arrange for Noelle to leave the group home and move into their home, where she could be among her family, out of a clinical environment, and also connected to her culture. But child services never approved the move, saying that Noelle would not have access to the resources she needed in the care of her aunt and uncle. Which, considering how everything turned out, is just so heartbreaking. Because, as I'm about to tell you, it clearly was the group home that seemingly lacked the resources to properly take care of Noelle. Not only did she go missing on their watch, it's unclear what, if anything, the group home did to search for Noelle. It's also unclear what, if anything, VPD did to find Noelle. Because, for one thing, even though Noelle went missing at only 13 years old, there was never an Amber Alert issued to find her. And then, jumping ahead a year to May 1st of 2022, Noelle's body, as well as the body of another woman in her 30s, were found in a single-room occupancy apartment unit in the downtown Eastside area. And as far as the timeline, I want to tell you guys that it's going to get a little bit confusing. Because there had actually been another dead body found in this same single-room apartment months earlier. And I want to give you some context before I get to what police say happened in this case, as far as Noelle. But just hang on, because yet again, the police narrative in this case is truly unbelievable. But let's take a step back and talk about that first dead body to be found in the apartment. So the first body to be found in this unit was back in February of 2022. And it was the body of the unit's resident a 46-year-old Vietnamese refugee by the name of Van Chung Pham. And it seems from his record that Van Chung Pham was a pretty bad guy. After spending a couple of years at refugee camps in the 90s, Pham became a permanent resident of Canada in 1993. 
And between 1994 and 2007, Van Chung Pham would go on to rack up a total of 13 criminal charges. Many of these charges were related to drugs, but Pham was not just a nonviolent criminal. In fact, according to a report from CBC News, Pham was acknowledged by an immigration judge as being a danger to the public and known for targeting vulnerable women in the downtown Eastside area. Pham also had a history of using drugs to coerce women into sex. In fact, another woman had actually died of an overdose in Pham's presence at a different room he was living in at a local hotel in Vancouver a year earlier. And another note about Pham's past is that, allegedly, Pham raped a woman in this same apartment where he would later be found dead himself. CBC News spoke to this woman who was allegedly raped by Pham. She chose not to be identified, but in an anonymous interview, she said that in November of 2020, Pham lured her into his apartment with drugs and gave her something which incapacitated her, which was when, she recalled, Pham proceeded to rape her. And I don't mention that just to speak to Pham's character, although that is important too. But we're going to talk again about this woman and specifically her recollection of Pham's apartment in just a bit, so just keep her in mind. But anyway, Vancouver police actually discovered Pham's body when they came to the apartment to serve him with charges from that alleged rape back in 2020. And here's what's really strange. Here's why I mentioned that the timeline might get a little confusing. Because the body of Van Chung Pham, as I said, was found in February of 2022. But somehow, in this single-room apartment, the bodies of Noello Soup and the 30-something-year-old woman, who police later identified as a woman named Elma Inan, were not found on the same day that Pham's body was. In fact, the bodies of Noel and Elma would not be found until three months later, when cleaning crews entered the unit to clear out Pham's belongings. And you guys, get this, get this, yet another insane story police came up with to try to explain away the death of another Indigenous girl. Vancouver police said, that the bodies of Noel and Alma had been in that apartment unit the whole time, that their bodies were there on the day police opened that door to that single-room unit and saw Pham's deceased body inside. Police say that Noel and Alma's bodies were there through the whole process of Pham's body being found and removed from the unit, but that those police and those first responders who removed Pham's body simply overlooked the other two. And I hate to sound like a broken record, but as I keep saying, the unit where three deceased bodies were found was a single-room apartment unit. Check out the post on the Out of Sight Facebook page for this episode. I'll put a picture of the unit with it. But I'll tell you guys right now that the unit was extremely small. It is one very small room. I'm not even sure there was a bathroom attached to it. It might have been like a one-bathroom-for-the-hall type of situation. So, 
If you're wondering at this point in the story how Vancouver PD really expect anyone to believe their explanation that not one but two deceased bodies possibly could have been missed in such a small space, well, don't worry. Since this apartment seems to have an explanation for everything with all of these mysterious cases, Vancouver PD had an explanation for this too. Let me walk you through it. So, publicly at least, the cause of death for all three people, Pham, Elma, and Noel, has never been released. But apparently, whatever Van Chung Pham's cause of death was, police somehow knew on the very day that he was found that they would not be investigating his death as suspicious. Now, I don't know how they could have possibly come to that determination so fast. And to be honest, I don't think they actually did. Again, in my opinion, I mean, I could be wrong, I don't know, but my read on the situation is that Vancouver PD probably just came up with this whole thing about Pham's death not being suspicious in more of a CYA moment than anything else. Because after the discovery of Noel and Elma's bodies, when journalists approached the department to ask how two deceased bodies could have been missed in a single-room unit, VPD said that since Pham's death was not considered suspicious, they did not have the proper authorization they needed to search the rest of the unit when he was found. And since they didn't have the authorization to search the room, they didn't find the bodies. That's their explanation. To which I say, bullshit. I mean, first of all, let's just be fucking for real. If those cops had wanted to search the unit they would have searched the unit. Police generally do what they want and put together whatever authorization they need later. And to be fair, I mean, the law is literally written for police to be allowed to do that. Whether you think it's a good thing or not, police do have a lot of freedom in how they do their jobs. So I just don't buy it as an excuse, but the thing too in this case is that you don't need authorization to search a room with your eyes, like literally just look around the room. And as police officers, I can't imagine them not taking a look around the room where they had just found a man dead. So how did they not see two deceased bodies? And also, I hate to say this, but you don't need formal authorization to smell two dead bodies when you're supposedly standing right next to them. So, at this point, if you're still wondering how Vancouver PD can get away with an explanation like this in the mysterious death of a child, among others, again, don't worry. The department has a secondary excuse, or, I'm sorry, excuse me, silly me, not an excuse, an explanation, besides the issue of red tape and authorization, as to why the two bodies were missed. Which is that... Vancouver PD told CBC News that the tenant, Van Chung Pham, was an extreme hoarder. And so his apartment was just so full of junk, packed to the brim, top to bottom, that it would have been impossible for anyone to have seen Noel and Elma's bodies. But here's the thing about that. Remember how I said that Pham allegedly raped a woman in that same apartment unit? and that his alleged victim was interviewed by CBC? Well, in that interview, she talked about what she remembers of the unit. 
And as you're about to hear, what she remembers is starkly different than what has been described by Vancouver PD. My spirit like left my body and then it was like, I was just laying there and I could just see what was going on, but not being able to do anything. This woman says she was sexually assaulted by Femme in his apartment in November 2020. She went to the hospital and two weeks later reported the assault to police. I felt like I just had to do it, so I did it right away. Police then applied for a search warrant for the Heatley Block apartment, which has now been unsealed by CBC for the first time. The contents of the search warrant raise as many questions as they answer, like why police didn't find Noelle Soup's body in apartment 16, especially since they'd searched it before and were actively investigating an alleged sexual assault that had taken place inside. Police said Pham was a hoarder, making the bodies impossible to find. Pham's alleged victim remembers the apartment differently. He kept it pretty clean all the time. I think he was very specific about that. He made his bed. Probably a lot of women listening right now, and myself included, can still easily pull to memory the details of a room where you were raped or assaulted more easily than most of us would prefer. It's not the kind of thing that leaves your brain or that you misremember. And besides, the woman who allegedly survived Pham's rape has nothing to gain by lying about the state of his apartment. Meanwhile, in my opinion, it seems that, especially if police thought that they could be up against some discipline for neglecting or mishandling the scene in this case, that could, in my opinion, be all the motive they would need to tell such a lie. However, I do think it's important to say that I don't know for sure where in the unit Noelle and Elma's bodies were found. I saw in one article that one of the bodies was in a recycling bin that had been taped shut. So hearing that, I want to be less suspicious about the police explanation of Noelle and Elma's bodies being overlooked because I'm not looking for a reason to hate the police or to think that there's a serial killer. But then I feel like VPD, they're kind of telling on themselves here a little bit. I mean, to me, the fact that the department appears, in my opinion, allegedly, to be lying about Pham being a hoarder, it makes me wonder if there could be more to the story. I mean... If they're going to lie about this, allegedly in my opinion, what else could they maybe be lying about? And real quick, I'm just going to drop one more weird fact about this case, and then I'm going to move the fuck on because I truly don't know what this means. But here's one last clip from Global News. That second dead female is closely related to a serving member of the Vancouver Police Department, which has repeatedly refused comments on this case. Again, I have no clue what that could possibly mean in this case, but I wanted you guys to hear it. And I guess I want to say, in a roundabout way, to give the police some benefit of the doubt here... I guess we should consider that police answering calls from homeless shelters or neighborhoods with high crime rates or single-room occupancy units like this one, they're typically going to do a pretty half-assed job. Because of the high volume of incidents in places like these, and to be blunt, 
because police in general are just not trained to really care about poor people that much. Hence why they generally don't prioritize these cases. And when it comes to Noel, again, trying to give the benefit of the doubt, maybe those cops there that day who discovered Pham's body but somehow overlooked Noel and Elma's, maybe those cops are just not that bright or just not that observant on top of maybe not taking it seriously in the first place. Again, I'm trying to give the benefit of the doubt, and I know that that's not great. Like, what I laid out for you, that situation, that's not great. In fact, it's a pretty sad state of affairs. But it would mean that maybe police are not being dishonest. And maybe this whole thing about Noelle's body being overlooked is not as shady as I'm worried that it is. And, I mean, as far as how Noel actually died, the cause of death has not been revealed, so I don't want to speculate. But considering Van Chung Pham's history of luring vulnerable women into his apartment with drugs, maybe what happened to Noel might be an open-and-shut case. A tragic open-and-shut case, don't get me wrong, it's a horrific end that no one, especially no child, deserves but not a mystery, maybe. But I don't know. There are a lot of unanswered questions. Questions that Noelle and her family deserve to have answered. So again, there's more info on Noelle's story in the show notes. And it's hard to even know what to say about a life taken so young. At only 14 years old, Noelle was just a baby. She should have still been with her family, and she should still be with them now to this day. And I wish I had the answers that Noelle and her family deserve. But since I don't, we're going to close this out by saying, rest in peace to Noelle Osoup. Because the very next day after Noelle Osoup's body was found, another young indigenous woman was found dead. 20-year-old Tatiana Harrison was found just outside the Vancouver city limits on May 2nd of 2022. But actually, before we get into Tatiana's story, I want to jump ahead in the timeline a bit and talk about Quem Manuel Gottfriedson, who was found dead in the downtown Eastside area on July 30th. And the reason why I want to talk about Quem's story before getting into Tatiana's is because in Quem's story, there have hardly been any details released publicly. Meanwhile, Tatiana's story is full of twists and turns and confusion that will probably infuriate you like it did me. So just for the sake of clarity in this episode, let's talk about Quem's story first. And as I said, there is very little information out there on what happened to Quem Manuel Gottfriedson, which is pretty standard in cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women when it comes to traditional media. But usually, there will be some kind of social media presence for justice run by the family. I couldn't find anything like that on social media for Quem. I also couldn't find an obituary or any articles past the initial reporting of her death. Now, I don't know, and I could be wrong, but 
What I'm taking this to mean is that maybe Quem's family would prefer to remain private. So, with respect to that possibility, I'm going to read you one of the very few articles on Quem's death from Global News, and then we're going to move on to Tatiana's story. And just like every article I've referenced in this episode, this one about Quem, which was written by Amy Judd and published on August 2nd, 2022 on globalnews.ca, will be linked in the show notes. So all that said, here's the article. A missing Indigenous woman who'd been living in Coquitlam, British Columbia, has been found dead on the downtown east side. Quem Manuel Gottfriedson was found dead on July 30th inside a building near East Hastings Street and Hawks Avenue. Vancouver police confirmed Tuesday that Manuel Gottfriedson's death is now being investigated by the Vancouver Police Major Crime Section. The BC Coroner's Service is also investigating, police say. The family of Manuel Gottfriedson, originally from the Okanagan, told Global News on Sunday that her disappearance is completely out of character and that she did not frequent the downtown east side. Her body was found just one block away from where the remains of teenager Noelle Osoup and another woman in her 30s were discovered in May. A man's body was found on February 23rd at the same unit as Osoup and the woman. There is nothing to suggest any of these cases are linked. And that's the end of the article. So, again, I'm sorry I don't have more information to share with you, but rest in peace, Quem Manuel Gottfriedson. And now, for our last Vancouver case, let's jump back to the 20-year-old woman named Tatiana Harrison, who was found on May 2nd. Tatiana Harrison was found deceased on a dry-docked yacht in a marina located just outside Vancouver in an area called Richmond. And as far as the timeline of how and when Tatiana came to be found on that boat, it's going to get a little bit confusing in this story as well. So I'm going to give you a rundown of the timeline first, and then we'll get into more of the details. So Tatiana was seen on surveillance at a local bank at the end of March 2022, and then reportedly, Tatiana was last seen alive having lunch with a friend on April 27th. But a social assistance check that was deposited into Tatiana's account sometime in the last week of April was never touched. Tatiana's body was found on that yacht on May 2nd. Her mom officially reported her missing on May 3rd. And it wasn't until months later, in August of 2022, that Tatiana's body was even identified, meaning that her mom continued to search all that time. Again, we'll get into more details, but let's start from the beginning. And first off, I want to say that just like every other family we've talked about so far, Tatiana's mom was let down by Vancouver PD, in my opinion, and especially at the beginning of her search. Because it would end up taking 20 days after Tatiana was reported missing for Vancouver PD to even get involved in her case. But this time, they had a different excuse than the usual, oh, she's just out partying. Although, I don't know. I mean, Tatiana was an indigenous woman who was missing, so the police might have said that too. But this time, the main excuse by law enforcement not to help the search came down to jurisdiction. 
Since Tatiana had only moved to Vancouver a few weeks before her disappearance and did not have an official Vancouver address yet, Vancouver PD would not take her case. They referred it to the department of Tatiana's last mailing address. And, in my opinion, this was not some kind of innocent jurisdictional mix-up. Because Tatiana's mom reported Tatiana missing to Vancouver PD and specifically told them that even though Tatiana did not have an official residence there, she had been living in Vancouver and went missing in Vancouver. So, in my opinion, there was no reason for Vancouver PD to turn Tatiana's mom away. But that's exactly what they did. To the point where, and we'll talk about this more later, but... The negligence on the part of Vancouver PD in this case may very well have cost Tatiana her life. And you guys, I hate this jurisdiction thing in general, because I feel like it gives police a way to be lazy or indifferent, but make it seem like their hands were just tied and they couldn't do anything. But in Tatiana's case, I mean, VPD can hide behind this jurisdiction excuse, and they can say that's why they didn't try to help find Tatiana. But they're really just hiding behind the rules and guidelines that they wrote for themselves. I mean, in my opinion, police are the ones deciding that Tatiana's case is not in their jurisdiction, and I think they did that as an excuse to ignore her. Because it seems to me that, given the circumstances— VPD could have easily made the decision that Tatiana's case did fall within their jurisdiction. I mean, as I mentioned in Noello Soup's case, police have so much discretion in how they decide to do their jobs. So I think what we see here with police in Tatiana's case is not a true jurisdictional issue, but rather a tale as old as colonial America when it comes to various law enforcement entities kicking the can down the road or down to the other department when it comes to a missing Indigenous woman. But anyway, VPD would not get involved in the search until investigators found the surveillance footage of Tatiana I mentioned earlier, which placed her at a bank in downtown Vancouver at the end of March. However, investigators did not find that tape until 20 days after Tatiana was reported missing. So, For those first 20 days, the entirety of the search and investigation fell on the shoulders of Tatiana's mom and Tatiana's mom alone. Like so many Indigenous parents, Tatiana's mom, Natasha Harrison, basically had to become a self-taught private investigator when her daughter went missing. She diligently searched shelters and single-room occupancy units throughout the downtown Eastside area. And Natasha told the Vancouver Sun that she was literally just out combing the streets on foot, walking up to people herself, and asking if they had seen Tatiana. Hi, I'm actually looking for my daughter. I was wondering if you guys have seen her around here. Her name's Tatiana. She's 20 years old. Here, do you want want to take one? I'll give that to you. Yeah. uh, I mean, yeah, I'll take one. Yeah, sorry. I mean, yeah, I've seen her. And you guys... When I said earlier that the 20-day delay from Vancouver PD may very well have cost Tatiana her life, I wasn't exaggerating. Because Tatiana's mom shared with the Vancouver Sun that during one of her searches of the downtown Eastside area, she encountered a group of people 
who said that they had seen Tatiana just 15 minutes earlier. But when Natasha hurried to call and share this information with the Vancouver PD so they could help her track down Tatiana at this crucial moment, now closer than ever, she found that the department did not seem to share that same urgency. Because when Tatiana's mom made that call, she was placed on a half-hour wait. And guess what happened after that half-hour wait when Tatiana's mom was finally connected with an officer? She was told that the department still did not have jurisdiction. So any tips on Tatiana's case would have to be sent to the department of the town where she had just moved from. Click, goodbye, no help whatsoever, when literally they could have sent officers out and possibly found Tatiana that day. They just didn't. And to be honest, I get the feeling that even after Vancouver PD found that surveillance video and finally did get involved in Tatiana's case, it looks to me like Natasha was still leading the investigation and search efforts. Now, to be fair, I did talk to Natasha briefly on Facebook Messenger when I first wrote about Tatiana's story on the Out of Sight Facebook page. And she did say that detectives from Vancouver Police were actively working with her to find Tatiana when they did finally get involved. So, I don't know. And of course, I don't know better than Tatiana's mom. But it just seems to me that even after those first 20 days, the investigation on the police side of things remained sluggish. For example, Tatiana's mom said to the Vancouver Sun that it was not until late July that BPD detectives even submitted a request to access Tatiana's Snapchat, which is something her mom assumed they would have already done weeks or even months earlier. Also, Screenshots of text conversations between Natasha and the BPD detective working with her, published by the Vancouver Sun, show the detective repeatedly saying things like, oh, the case is dried up, we're just waiting for a miracle, we've exhausted all the leads. Now, as always, I'm not a profesh, but to me, in my amateur opinion, that just doesn't seem like great investigative work. But remember, All this time, unbeknownst to both Natasha Harrison and the police, Tatiana's body was laying unidentified at the morgue. For three long months, Tatiana's body was unidentified at the morgue. And for three long months, Tatiana's mom continued her tireless search to find her daughter. Which, literally, every time I write it, or say it, or think about it, It just kind of hits me how painful that must have been. And how disgusting it is that what Tatiana's mom went through, and what Kaysera Stops Pretty Place's family went through, of searching for their missing daughter, meanwhile her body was unidentified at the morgue the whole time, is so incredibly common for Indigenous families whose deceased relatives are treated as second-class citizens by the system on every level. But in Tatiana's case, there are some strange details about why her body went unidentified for so long. Because the reason why she went unidentified for so long is because of how she was initially described when she was found on that yacht. 
because in the initial report, the woman found on the yacht was described as Caucasian in her 30s or 40s, 5 foot 5 inches tall and 90 pounds. We know now that this woman was Tatiana. But here's the thing. Tatiana was 20 years old, 5 foot 1 and obviously not Caucasian, but indigenous. So why the fuck did that happen? And how the fuck did such a big mix-up in describing a body happen? Well, I don't know. And to be honest, we don't really even have time to talk more about it. Because there's so much more we need to get into about how Tatiana's body came to be found. As I mentioned, Tatiana was found on a dry-docked yacht. It was a bit of an older one, and 40 feet long. And the yacht where she was found was dry-docked in a marina, which looks to me, based on their Google listing, to be pretty upscale. And according to Tatiana's mom, this marina was gated and equipped with surveillance cameras. But somehow, none of those cameras captured any footage of Tatiana entering the marina, moving around, or getting onto that yacht. So again, I'm sorry to be a broken record because I feel like I've said this about every case, but there's the question of how Tatiana got to the spot where her body was found. How she would have navigated her way into a gated and surveilled marina and onto a yacht without being spotted by anyone or the surveillance cameras. Especially because when Tatiana was found, she was wearing a turtleneck but was otherwise naked. No shoes, no socks, no underwear, no pants, just a turtleneck. So how did she get to that spot half naked? And one more thing, get this. The marina where Tatiana was found is also not accessible by public transport, and Tatiana did not have a car. So just one more reason to wonder how she would have possibly gotten herself out to that spot. I mean, she couldn't have, right? If it wasn't accessible by public transport, then someone had to have given her a ride. But once again, police were quick to label Tatiana's death as, quote, not suspicious when she finally was identified. With no clarity as to how Tatiana got onto that boat and seemingly no interest about whoever it was who would have had to have given her a ride there, Police said that they suspected no criminality in Tatiana's death. And in the beginning, now remember this, because we'll come back to it in a second, police initially said that Tatiana's cause of death had been determined to be fentanyl toxicity. And with that, her case was closed. But this would later turn out not to be true. Tatiana, in fact, did not die from fentanyl toxicity, like police initially said. Which Tatiana's mom knew right from the start. Natasha said that as soon as she talked to the coroner herself and heard about the scene and how her daughter's body was found exactly, she knew that Tatiana did not die of an overdose. Here's a clip of Natasha Harrison talking more about that at a rally held for Tatiana and the other women found in Vancouver. The information I gathered from the coroner and law enforcement, there was no evidence 
to support a fentanyl toxicity theory. In fact, with the evidence being presented to me, was possible an assault had occurred. And here's Tatiana's mom again, talking about her daughter's cause of death. I can accept her passing away from an overdose. Like, it's a lot easier than accepting what it really looks like. You know, you don't take your clothes off. An overdose on a boat? (laughs) So, I wanted you guys to hear that specifically because of how much victim-blaming typically goes on in cases like Tatiana's, where the deceased person was struggling with substance abuse or mental health at the time of their death. I think a lot of people see family members like Tatiana's mom and assume that these grief-stricken family members are maybe just looking for foul play as an explanation in their loved one's death because to blame someone else would be less painful than the alternative. But you guys just heard in what Natasha Harrison said that that's not true. Now, I didn't know Tatiana personally, I don't know Natasha personally, but it seems to me that Natasha Harrison was aware that her daughter, like so many others, was struggling with substance abuse. It seems like Natasha was right alongside her daughter as her cheerleader into recovery and bettering her life. And it seems like Natasha was not in denial. Like so many parents of children in addiction, it seems that Natasha knew that a fatal overdose was a very real possibility for her daughter. I'm sure it was something that kept her up many, many nights before Tatiana's death. And as she said, it would have been easier for her to accept the idea that Tatiana did pass away of an overdose, rather than what it actually looks like happened. Because it seems that how Tatiana died and how she may have spent her last moments could be something much darker and much more sinister than an overdose. I mean, I agree with Tatiana's mom that you don't just take your clothes off and overdose on a boat. But let's get back to the topic of Tatiana's cause of death and how Vancouver PD initially got it so wrong. Because, as I said, when Tatiana was finally identified in August— VPD made an official statement saying that her cause of death was fentanyl toxicity. And as I said, Natasha knew from the first conversation she had with the coroner that this could not possibly be right. But it was not until 10 months later that Natasha finally was able to read through the coroner's report herself, and her suspicions were finally confirmed in black and white. Because when Natasha finally did get access to the coroner's report— she found that it did not say that Tatiana died of fentanyl toxicity. In fact, the toxicology report found only a trace non-lethal amount of fentanyl in Tatiana's system, and there were no drugs or drug paraphernalia found on that yacht with her. So as far as Tatiana's cause of death, it was actually determined by the coroner that Tatiana died of a blood infection called sepsis, which can become fatal if left untreated. The coroner's report also noted that Tatiana did not have any trauma or injuries to her body, 
but that she did appear malnourished and underweight. A rape kit was apparently conducted at some point, but as of last reporting, Tatiana's mom had not heard any kind of update. So, if Tatiana died of sepsis, why did Vancouver police say right after her body was identified that she died of fentanyl toxicity? Well, CBC News approached the department with this question, and a VPD spokesperson said that they had been informed by the coroner's office that Tatiana's cause of death was fentanyl toxicity and Vancouver PD were merely relaying that information. But CBC News followed up and reached out to the coroner's office for a statement. And the coroner's office responded, saying that sepsis was the only cause of death ever determined in Tatiana's case, and that they had never determined her cause of death to be fentanyl toxicity. So, you guys, I promise I'm not making light of any of this. I am not making light of any of this. But at this point, with the insanity of police work in all of these cases, honestly, the only thing I find myself wanting to say to Vancouver PD is... Why the fuck you lying? Why you always lying? Oh my god, stop fucking lying. Allegedly. But... I just don't get it. I don't get what happened in Tatiana's case, how it happened, and why. How, once again, did Vancouver PD make such a big fuck-up in the case of another dead Indigenous young woman? And how many times can VPD make these huge blunders, like overlooking dead bodies and publicly announcing an incorrect cause of death, How many times can they keep refusing to help search for Indigenous women, only to determine their deaths as not suspicious when their bodies are found, before someone starts looking critically into them? I mean, as we heard from Gerilyn Webster earlier... You know who is suspicious? VPD! Now, in the spirit of being against Vancouver PD and all the harm they've caused to the Indigenous community, I would love to just leave it there on that sentiment and just move on to our next location. But in the interest of being a responsible podcaster, I feel that I do have to give you an important note on context before we move on from the Vancouver cases, because several of the cases we've talked about today are centered in the downtown Eastside area. But before we get there, let's take a moment to say rest in peace to Tatiana Harrison, another beautiful young woman who should still be alive today. And let's take a moment, too, to acknowledge Natasha Harrison, because it seems clear to me that Tatiana was her mom's whole heart, and I can't even imagine the pain of a mother losing her only child. So, with that, I want to give you a little more context about downtown Eastside, because in the interest of not sensationalizing anything, I want to make sure I tell you that, from my understanding, there are a lot of overlapping issues in the downtown Eastside area of Vancouver. It is the epicenter of homelessness and addiction in the entire province of British Columbia, with residents also severely lacking access to housing, 
as well as other basic human rights like health care, food, and treatment for mental health and or addiction. For U.S. listeners, I would say you could compare downtown Eastside to somewhere like Skid Row in L.A. Basically, it's a really dangerous place, and there are a lot of ways people lose their lives in downtown Eastside. It's not all murder. So I wanted to be sure to take that moment to address the larger issues at play here and make sure you guys had the full picture. Because I want you guys to know that, I mean, I know I've never been to downtown Eastside or Vancouver, so I'm not claiming any firsthand or expert knowledge. But I've read about it, and I understand the reality of the dangers reportedly in downtown Eastside. I don't have my head in the clouds about this, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But still, I will say to me, even considering the greater perils of downtown Eastside, the stories I told you today, I think are still suspicious enough to raise red flags. And I don't think we should be ruling out the possibility that these cases could be connected. I mean, as I've said a million times, I'm just an amateur. But just like the Bighorn County cases, I think that these Vancouver cases deserve a proper investigator taking a look at them together. And so now, with so much respect for the lives and families of Chelsea Poorman, Noella Soup, Tatiana Harrison, and Quem Manuel Gottfriedson, we're going to move on from the Vancouver cases. And now, for one last location and three last cases, let's jump to a rural area right on the border of northern Manitoba and Saskatchewan. Because in this sparsely populated area of less than 10,000 people, two indigenous women were found dead in October of 2022. A woman by the name of Justine Siwap was found dead in a burning house and a 25-year-old woman by the name of Tristan Raven-Job was found dead on a golf course. And then, just a few months later, in January of 2023, 27-year-old Kara Fosinuv was found dead in her own garage after being missing for a week. So, without further ado, let's get into these three last stories. And we'll start with the story of Tristan Raven-Job. Tristan was seen at the Phantom Lake Golf Course in Creighton, Saskatchewan, on October 5th, the day before she was found. Now, the golf course was closed at this time, but reportedly, Tristan was spotted by employees who were there having a staff meeting. And since the golf course was closed, the employees asked Tristan to leave. And after that, Tristan was reportedly seen one last time by another employee of the golf course— a maintenance staff member, witnessed Tristan allegedly trying to get into the staff housing on the golf course grounds, and again, asked her to leave. This happened around 6pm, and according to this staff member, Tristan appeared fine at this time. But when Tristan's mom later tried to figure out what ended up happening, like, did anyone call RCMP police on Tristan to get her to leave? Did anyone offer her a ride? Or which way did she go, if she left walking? The staff member wasn't sure. But the next morning, October 6th, an ambulance was called to the golf course for a report of a woman in medical distress. 
Those first responders discovered Tristan under a golf shelter, and she was pronounced dead on the scene. And reportedly, Tristan was found underneath a golf shelter, laying flat on her back on top of gravel. But she had leaves in her hair. And get this. Allegedly, Tristan's mom was discouraged from seeing her daughter's body at all, and instead, it was suggested to her that she should identify Tristan based on her tattoos. Luckily, Tristan's mom did not agree to that. She insisted on seeing her daughter's body. And I don't know why that happened. I don't know why she was allegedly discouraged and why it all went down that way. But it doesn't come off great. However, according to the RCMP, a thorough examination of the scene was conducted to locate, collect, and analyze evidence that would assist in determining the circumstances of Tristan's death. The department also claims to have followed up on all information and tips received, and said in a statement to CBC that RCMP's major crimes unit was and continues to be engaged in this investigational process. However, the department goes on to claim that none of the evidence, including autopsy results from the Saskatchewan Coroner's Service, indicates that the cause of Tristan's death was criminal. Once again, another dead Indigenous woman, and another case that the police say has no foul play. And once again, a family left with questions. Because here's what Tristan's mom, Val Charlotte, had to say about the investigation into her daughter's death. She said, quote, Contrary to the coroner's report, I believe her death was suspicious, end quote. And in a statement made on Instagram, Tristan's sister said, quote, On the morning of October 6, 2022, my sister, Tristan Raven Jobs' lifeless body, was found at the Phantom Lake Golf Course in Creighton, Saskatchewan. My sister was stolen from us and dumped like she meant nothing. She was a 25-year-old Indigenous woman. I never thought that MMIW would hit so close to home, but it has. My sister deserves justice, end quote. And Tristan does deserve justice. And her family deserves answers. Once again, not just about how Tristan died, but how her body came to be found on that golf course. Because remember how I said that Tristan was found laying flat on her back on gravel, but also was found to have leaves in her hair? Well, if she had walked herself out onto that golf course and under that shelter alone, how would she have ended up with leaves in her hair? And for what it's worth, this is something that Tristan's mom has also voiced to local media. She said, quote, From where she was found, that tells me it's not where she died. And unfortunately, there hasn't seemed to be much more of an investigation into Tristan's death, so I don't have more to share with you. Except just to say, of course, rest in peace to Tristan Raven Job. And before we move on to the next story, I want to take a minute to point out a kind of sub-pattern within the greater pattern of how these women are found that first occurred to me when researching Tristan's case. Now, of course, what I'm about to tell you is conjecture. It could totally be a coincidence. But just me looking at all these cases, I want to tell you what I see. And I see a golf course where Tristan Raven Job was found, 
a yacht at a gated marina where Tatiana Harrison was found, and a $7 million vacant mansion where Chelsea Portman was found. And I don't know, but I just think to myself, could it really be coincidence for three indigenous women to be found mysteriously dead in locations which perfectly embody the colonialism that has been killing Native people for centuries? Just something to think on. But with that, let's now talk about a woman by the name of Justine Siwap, who was also found in this area in October of 2022, just over a week after Tristan was found. The body of 31-year-old Justine was found in an area of Manitoba called Flinflon. She was found inside a burning house by the first responders answering the call to the fire. RCMP police initially said that they were investigating both the fire and the discovery of Justine's body as suspicious. But since then, there has been no further public update. And something uniquely heartbreaking about Justine's story, among the others we've talked about this episode, is that her case received absolutely no media coverage. The only thing that came out was a local news article about the house fire and a body being found inside. But there are literally zero local news stories that mention Justine by name. Which, as I said earlier, it is sadly common for stories of missing and murdered Indigenous people to be underrepresented in the news and media. And that's because there's generally not nearly enough societal respect or care for the lives of Indigenous people. But usually, there will at least be an article or two. So in cases like Justine's, where there is absolutely no official news coverage, it feels like a step beyond just disrespectful, maybe even dehumanizing. As if Justine is just another dead Indian. As if Justine doesn't even deserve to be named. I only heard about Justine's story because a family member of hers reached out to me and asked me to cover it on the Out of Sight Facebook page. And that family member who contacted me says that they believe Justine's death was a homicide. This family member told me that they believe Justine was beaten to death by an ex-boyfriend, and then he set the house on fire. Now, as far as that, I mean, I wish I had more to tell you there. But as of now, I just don't. That's what's been told to me, but with no official news coverage, I can't verify. So, once again, of course, let's take a minute to say rest in peace to Tristan Ravenjob and Justine Siwap, another two women who were irreplaceable parts of their families and communities, and whose lives matter. And now, the last story I'm going to tell you is about the mysterious death of a 27-year-old woman named Kara Fosinov. And before we get into her story, I'll tell you guys that ending with the story of Kara Fosinov really brings us back full circle to Selena Not Afraid. Because Kara went missing after walking away from a house party on New Year's Eve. Remember that Selena went missing trying to get a ride home after spending the night at a New Year's Eve house party. And as you'll come to see, the police narrative in Kara's death might appear to have just as many 
gaping holes and just as much audacity as the Bighorn County Sheriff's Department's explanation that Selena wandered off into a field, died of hypothermia, and lay unnoticed for 20 days. So without further ado, let's get into Kara's story. Details about why Kara might have walked away from that New Year's Eve house party have not been reported, except to say that she apparently left without her phone. But Kara was a mom of three young kids, who she wouldn't have just up and left, and she was also known to be a reliable employee. So when she was a no-call, no-show to her next scheduled shift at work, Kara's family knew that something was wrong. She was officially reported missing on January 5th, and then on January 8th, eight long days since Kara left that New Year's Eve party on foot, her body was found. And she was found in the garage of the home where she lived with her children and her grandparents. She was found by an RCMP officer, and her cause of death was later determined to be exposure, and once again, no foul play suspected from jump. And you guys get this, get this head spinning level of shameless, limitless audacity shown by the Flin Flon RCMP who handled Kara's case in what they said happened to her. Because according to police in this case, it was determined that Kara walked home from that party, took shelter in the garage, froze to death, and lay unnoticed for a week. But here's the thing. Kara was found on a Sunday morning, and according to family, her brothers had been in that garage on Saturday, literally the day before. And not only had they been in the garage, reportedly, they went in there to get some supplies, and they also shoveled and cleaned out the garage, which is very small. And on that Saturday, her brothers saw nothing, and nothing seemed out of the ordinary. And then, somehow, the next day, Kara's body turns up in that garage. And you guys, there's a part of me that honestly just wants to cry describing this garage to you. I'm not going to, don't worry, but it makes me feel all emotional and fucked up inside to look at the pictures of it. Because, you guys, it's a single-car garage, and it's a small single-car garage at that. Also, both the garage door, like the big door where the cars go, and the regular door on the side of the garage had been removed from their hinges long before Kara went missing. And those doorways weren't covered by anything else, it was just wide open. And, as I mentioned... Kara's brothers were reportedly in there the day before, shoveling snowdrifts and cleaning up the space. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, in my opinion, they could not have missed seeing Kara's body if she really was there. Take a look at the pictures for yourself, you'll see what I mean and why I feel so certain. And, I mean, I hate to even say this out loud, but it's not just a matter of her brothers seeing Kara's body. If she had been laying there for a week, again, I hate to say it, but there would have been smells, and smells that probably would have attracted animals and bugs. And also, I saw a Facebook comment that I believe was posted by Kara's dad. 
Now, I don't know for sure, of course, you know, social media and all that, but I do believe this is Kara's dad. And he was commenting on a post made by Kara's sister, Robin. And in the post, it was clear that the family is comfortable with this information being public. So the comment from Kara's dad is about the day that her body was found in the garage. And here's what he said, quote, When I first mentioned that my son was in the garage the day before and had not seen Kara, the RCMP officer I spoke to said that Kara was dressed in all black, and my son might have thought Kara was a black tarp and missed seeing her, end quote. Which, if that's true, that that's what the RCMP officer said, that is just pure, pure audacity. I wish I had a word better than audacity, but in this case, I just don't think there's one that's as good. I mean, to say that Kara's brothers could have possibly overlooked her body or mistaken her for a tarp, it's just ridiculous and insulting. Plus, according to Kara's family, there was no black tarp in the garage before Kara went missing. But get this. Kara's dad went on to say in that comment that when the family got Kara's clothing and belongings returned, they were also returned a black tarp. It all just seems, in my opinion, beyond shady. And, I mean, of course keep in mind that there is limited official information on Kara's death, so maybe I am missing something big here. But personally, in my opinion, I also think it's weird that Kara's body was found by an RCMP officer. Because why would an RCMP officer randomly come by and search Kara's garage eight days after she went missing? I mean, again, I could be wrong, but based on what I've seen in other cases, I would be shocked if RCMP had offered a lot of resources or help to Kara's family during their search efforts for her. So. Why do something as oddly specific as having an officer come search the garage after eight days? And then, just how convenient is that? Somehow, when Kara's brothers were in that garage on Saturday, shoveling it out and cleaning, they didn't notice their sister's body. But then somehow, the very next day, just random, you know, good old friendly neighborhood RCMP officer just happens to come by and search, and what do you know, there she is. Also, one of Kara's aunts posted on Facebook that, allegedly, the RCMP officer who found Kara removed her body from the garage first before even telling her family that she was there or letting them see her and say goodbye. So really, if we're believing her aunt's Facebook post, nobody ever even saw Kara's body in that garage except for that RCMP officer. But allegedly, we just have to take his word on that since allegedly he moved Kara's body so hastily. Which, just, why? All of it. Why? And we haven't even talked about what might be the biggest gaping hole in the police explanation of Kara's death. Because aside from the problems with the idea that Kara's body could have gone unnoticed for so long, there's also the issue of why on earth Kara would be taking shelter in a doorless, unheated garage on a winter night. Because, if I haven't made it clear yet, Kara was found in the garage of the home where she lived. 
She lived there with her children and her grandparents, all of whom were reportedly home that night. Now, something else police have said is that Kara was allegedly walking home from that party intoxicated. Which, who's to say if that's even true, but I think the reason why police make a point of it is because, in my opinion, if Kara was drunk, they think it will make it make sense that she would huddle up in her own garage and freeze to death. I also think they do it to victim blame. And I strongly disagree on both points. I'm not really going to talk about the victim blaming so much, just because, literally, Kara did nothing wrong. Again, I don't know if she drank at that party, but if she did, she's a legal adult and perfectly within her rights to go out and have fun. And that's the thing, too. Kara was a 27-year-old woman. It's not like this was a 15-year-old girl trying to sneak back in the house and not get in trouble. It just doesn't make sense to me. If Kara did walk home from that New Year's Eve party, why would she not have just gone inside? It just makes no sense. And I know this is not a hot take, but just think about what would happen if, let's say, police in Orange County tried to pull some foolishness like this with wealthy white parents on the mysterious death of their daughter. Do any of us think that that kind of police work would fly there? We all know it wouldn't. Police on Kara's case probably even know that it wouldn't. But over and over again, the mysterious deaths of Indigenous people are not investigated, and their families are given these wild explanations regarding the nature of their loved one's death by police. And I just hate it. I hate seeing over and over again law enforcement just be allowed to treat indigenous families like the family of Kara Fosinuv and others we've talked about as if they're stupid. I mean, I hate to put it so bluntly, but police are allowed to just give these, in my opinion, ridiculous and nonsensical explanations to grieving indigenous families on how their loved ones died as if those grieving indigenous families are just going to believe it. And I can't even imagine how frustrating and heartbreaking and powerless it must be for those families who don't believe the law enforcement narrative, but who are just left with no recourse and no other options. But I don't talk about the poor caliber of police work in cases of missing and murdered Indigenous people just to shit on the police. I talk about it because the lack of police work in cases of missing and murdered indigenous people does serious damage in more ways than one. I mean, first of all, there's the trail of brokenhearted families whose loved one's death or disappearance was never even investigated, or who were given a crazy explanation that makes no sense. And I can't even imagine the pain of living that every day, just years upon years for some of these families, with no justice, and possibly knowing that your loved one's killer is just going to go free. And that's the other thing. The poor quality of police work leaves more than just emotional scars. The poor quality of police work in cases of MMIP is actively contributing to the high rates of violence towards Indigenous people. Because not investigating mysterious deaths and murders of indigenous people means that the killers of indigenous people 
are often allowed to go free. Free to potentially do it again. And getting back to the overall topic of this episode, we have to consider how the generally bad police work we see in MMIP cases could interact with the possibility of a serial killer targeting indigenous women. Because that's actually something that has happened before. But before we get back on the topic of a potential serial killer, I know it means almost nothing, but I want to make sure I take a moment to say rest in peace to Kara Fosinov. Among all the true criminess of this true crime podcast, among all the talk of a potential serial killer, I just want to make sure that we remember Kara as a person, and we also remember the three young boys who lost their mother, and all the other members of Kara's family, whose grief and suffering I won't even try to put into words. So with that, for context, I want to tell you about two Canadian serial killers, Robert Picton, one of the most prolific, and Jeremy Skibicki, one of the most recent, and both of whom targeted Indigenous women. Robert Picton was a pig farmer who confessed to an undercover cop that he murdered a total of 49 women from the 80s up until his arrest in 2002. And according to a later inquiry with Commissioner Wally Opal in 2012, it was found that inadequate police work was a big part of what enabled Robert Picton to murder so many women and get away with it. And it's worth noting that many of Picton's victims were indigenous women from the downtown Eastside area of Vancouver. And the other Canadian serial killer I mentioned, Jeremy Skibicki, was just arrested back in December of 2022 for allegedly murdering four women. Three of his victims, by the names of Morgan Harris, Rebecca Contois, and Mercedes Mayran, were all indigenous women, and the fourth victim has yet to be identified. And I wanted to tell you about Skibiki, because his case goes to show just how little progress has been made by law enforcement since Picton's reign of terror. Because get this, it is believed that Jeremy Skibicki dumped the bodies of his victims at a landfill in Winnipeg. That's what police said publicly at the time of Skibicki's arrest. But even though they acknowledge that the bodies of at least four women were dumped there, police have steadfastly refused to call for a search of the landfill. Which, I can't get into the details of that because this episode is already a million hours long, but basically, police say that a search of the landfill would be too difficult to even attempt. Basically, these women just aren't worth it to them. And that's the other thing we have to keep in mind about the notion of an active serial killer targeting indigenous women. The lives of indigenous women and men, people in general, are not treated like they matter by the police or the greater justice system. And that makes indigenous people, especially indigenous women and girls, more vulnerable to potentially be targeted by a serial killer, 
because especially taking into account the jurisdictional loopholes in the U.S. when it comes to crime on reservations, the system has metaphorically placed a target on their backs. So much so that, in my opinion, and I mean, as I said a million times, I don't know if there's a serial killer behind any of the cases we talked about today. But after centuries of colonialism, it seems to me that a serial killer targeting indigenous people seems almost inevitable, because the system has just made it so easy. But still, it is a big thing to say. And I'll tell you guys that until I heard Kara's story, I was a little on the fence about making this episode, let alone having it as the finale. But it was Kara's story that pushed me over the edge. And it also wasn't until I heard Kara's story that I began to connect the possible dots between the other two. Because back in October of 2022, I remember hearing about Tristan's story right away. I read an article about her death published the day she was found, and then a follow-up a few days later. But it wasn't until a few months after that that Justine's family member reached out to me, and I was made aware of her story. And at first, because my Canadian geography is basically non-existent, I didn't clock how close together Justine and Tristan were found. I didn't clock how close Phantom Lakes Golf Course in Creighton, Saskatchewan is to Flin Flon, Manitoba. And not being aware of the geographical closeness, I didn't really have any reason to link Justine and Tristan's cases in my mind. Now, by this time, I had been mapping these similar cases for a while, and I remember that Tristan's story certainly sent off red flags for me as far as the strange way that her body was found. But, as I've said, I've noticed that these unusual deaths seem to happen in clusters in different locations. So, since I didn't see any other deaths of young indigenous women in the area, I didn't add Tristan to my map right away. And because Justine's family says that she was killed by her romantic partner, her story just seemed very different to me than the others we've covered. No less important, of course, but not the M.O. So, for a while, Justine and Tristan both were not on my map. But then, a few months passed, bringing us to January of 2023, and the mysterious death of Kara Fosnuv. And I remember when I first heard Kara's story, when I was scrolling my phone and came across a headline about the mysterious death of a Native woman being ruled exposure, I remember an all-too-familiar feeling, suddenly putting my whole body and mind in a vice grip. The best way I can describe the feeling is it's like my heart sank into my stomach like a swamp, and then my empty chest was sucked into a black hole of doom and anxiety. And it's a feeling that, by the time I had come across Kara's story, had become familiar to me. Because it's how I felt every time I came across a case that I knew I needed to add to my map. And for reasons I explained earlier, Kara's story was setting off red flags in my head a mile a minute as I read through it that first time. And as I read through Kara's story that first time, the name of the town Flin Flon pinged familiar in my brain. And then I remembered Justine. 
because I had just written about her a few months earlier, and she was also found in Flinflon. I think I remembered Flinflon because it's a unique name. And when I put it together that another young indigenous woman was found in this small rural area just a few months earlier, that black hole of doom and anxiety that had formed in my chest as soon as I saw the headline about Kara's story started swirling inside me faster and faster until it reached a nauseating speed of just, again, anxiety. And then at this point is when I remembered Tristan Raven Job. I had just written about Tristan's case, too, just a few months before. And I couldn't point out the town of Creighton, where Tristan was found, on a map. But I did remember that it was in northern Canada, just like Flinflon. But northern Canada is a big place, and so I'll tell you guys that what I found when I looked up the distance between Flinflon and Creighton is not what I was hoping to see. Because as I've said, I am not rooting for there to be a serial killer in any of these cases. So, as I opened Google Maps and navigated from Phantom Lakes Golf Course in Creighton, Saskatchewan, to Flinflon, Manitoba, I was hoping to see a distance of hundreds and hundreds of miles or kilometers between the two places, making it not impossible but less likely that all three tragic deaths could possibly be linked in any kind of serial killer-like fashion. But you guys, when those results came up on Google Maps, my heart sank even further than I ever thought was possible. Because the distance between Flin Flon, Manitoba and that golf course in Creighton is 5.2 kilometers or 3.2 miles an estimated nine-minute drive. Now, at this point, I feel like I should make the new tagline of the show. I don't know whether or not there's a serial killer, but, like, come on. Because, once again, I don't know whether or not there's a serial killer, but looking at this, it's like, come on. With all these cases, which sure are not cookie cutter, but with all the similarities, the timelines, the cause of death, no trauma to the body, the conspicuous locations, the constant question of how did they not find her body sooner? Or how did she end up at that spot where she was found? And the constant answer of she was there the whole time. I mean, if it's not a serial killer, what the fuck is it? Like, what is going on? But don't get me wrong, I mean, as I said, I have doubted myself plenty of times in the lead-up to putting out this episode. So I do want to give one last disclaimer. Because sometimes I'll get a message after I post a new Facebook write-up or a TikTok, either correcting something I said wrong or giving me some extra information to include that had not been reported publicly yet. Of course, I'm never trying to spread misinformation or present misinformation, I hope there's nothing about me that gives off that impression. But this podcast is a one-woman operation, research, writing, everything else, and sometimes I do flub things. And I'm so grateful for people, family members, and listeners who take the time out of their day to reach out and help me out. And so I know that after I post this episode, I might get some messages. And maybe I'll get a message telling me that with one or maybe more of these cases, I missed the mark. 
that the truth is, in fact, not as mysterious or as similar as I may think. But I decided that's a risk that I'm willing to take. Because even if I am dead wrong on the serial killer angle here, which I know that I might be, at least this episode can get the word out there a little more on the stories of all these women we talked about. And I think it also makes sense to end on this note, whether or not there even is a serial killer, whether or not I'm on the right path at all here. Because I think it can remind us once again that Selena's story does not exist in a vacuum, that she is one of many, many indigenous women and girls and men whose untimely and mysterious deaths are never taken seriously by the system. So, to Bonnie Three Irons, Henny Scott, Kaysera Stops Pretty Places, Selena Not Afraid, Jade Wagon, Cheryl Tiara Long Soldier, Shayna Young Man Afraid of His Horses, Chelsea Poorman, Noelle Osoup, Tatiana Harrison, Quem Manuel Gottfriedson, Tristan Raven Job, Justine Siwap, Kara Fosnuv, and all of their families. I just want to say that I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I don't have more information to share on this podcast, and I'm sorry that making this episode realistically won't have that much impact for these women or their families. I wish there was more that I could say or do. I'm sorry that these women and girls aren't still alive today, and I'm sorry for the disrespect that their lives, as well as their families, have been treated with by the justice system, as well as mainstream media. And I'm sorry that it's my fellow white people, past and present, who have created a society in which grief and heartbreak like this is a reality for a majority of Indigenous people. I'm sorry that, not literally but figuratively, it was my white ancestors who came to Turtle Island and committed genocide on Indigenous people. And I'm sorry that other white people alive today, hundreds of years later, are continuing to perpetuate that genocide. Which, getting into final thoughts of this episode, this is something I want to touch on again. Because whether or not there is a serial killer behind any of the cases we've talked about today, we know for sure that there is an active, far-reaching, and what's worse, codified serial killer absolutely targeting indigenous people right now. And that serial killer is the system. You see it in the stats. The fact that murder is the third leading cause of death for indigenous women. And the fact that the homicide rate for indigenous people is almost twice as high as the national average. And it's not just murder that is killing Native people. You also see it in the fact that Indigenous people die by suicide at a higher rate than any other ethnic group, and that suicide rate among Native people has increased by 40% in the past 10 years. And when the biggest serial killer is the system, it does not discriminate based on age. Because there's even shocking stats when it comes to indigenous babies who face an infant mortality rate 60% higher than white babies. And you see it in the fact that in Montana, 
The life expectancy for Native people is 20 years shorter than it is for white people. And you even see it when you take a closer look at each individual story we've talked about today. Because you know how Selena had lost two sisters and a brother before her own death at only 16 years old? Well, I think to a lot of us, I know to me when I first heard Selena's story, this stuck out to me as unique. I had never met or even heard of a mother who had lost four of her five children prematurely, like Selena's mom has. But now, having researched more cases and having spent a decent chunk of time actually staying on the res, while I still have not met another mother who has buried four of five children, I have met several parents, most of them younger than my mom, who have already had to bury at least two children. I've met a lot of kids on the res who became orphans before they were in the double digits. And as I said, if you peel back one more layer on the stories we talked about in this episode, you'll see it as well. Because of the women and girls we talked about today, Selena is not the only one to have lost a sibling. Jade Wagon, who was found one day apart from Selena in Wyoming, had also buried a sister in her short life. Jade's sister, Jocelyn Watt, was shot to death in her home just a year before Jade's disappearance. And in Henny Scott's obituary, it mentions that she was preceded in death by a brother named CJ. Also, Tristan Ravenjob and Kara Fosnuv were, I was told by a family member, cousins. And this is sad, but that's probably not all of them. Because there wasn't a public obituary for every single person whose mysterious death we've talked about today. And I felt it would be cruel to reach out to family members to ask this particular question. But fact is, I would not be surprised at all if even more of the women we talked about today had to live through the death of a sibling. And I think that says something. Because outside of Native communities, it's more rare, I would say to have to go through the trauma of losing a sibling so young. But in Native communities, it's almost commonplace. And I'm not going to lie. As I see it, at least, things are so bad right now that it can feel hopeless at times. Even for me, from my position of privilege in society, it can feel hopeless to even have this podcast and be talking about these cases. Because when I started this podcast, I truly believed that change through the system was possible. That maybe there would be some new law or some new measure that I could encourage my listeners to vote for and support. And gosh darn it, maybe we could make some real grassroots change. But I've learned a lot since then. And a lot has happened since then. On a societal and even global scale. And for a whole lot of reasons, I just don't believe anymore that change through the system is possible. And I think we, the people, would be wasting our energy, like a hamster spinning in a wheel, to try to pursue that angle. And so, if I don't believe in systemic change anymore, then really, what is the purpose of this podcast? I tried to change it. I tried to stop it, but... 
It's just right in front of their faces. They're turning human beings into monstrosities and nobody gives a fuck. Most people that saw you on that screen knew calling their congressman wasn't going to do shit. If you get shown a problem but have no idea how to control it, then you just decide to get used to the problem. That was a clip from the movie Sorry to Bother You. It's a movie I highly recommend, and that sentiment is something that has taken up space in my brain rent-free for a long, long time. Because I think it's true. What good does awareness do without any feasible call to action? I mean, we as a society are aware of plenty of things. I think most of us are heavily aware of how messed up the electoral college system is, just to pick a random example. We all know that our votes basically don't count in electing the supposed leader of our country. But since none of us can do anything to change it, what have we done? We've all become desensitized to it and just go ahead and vote and post our I voted selfies on election day anyway. I don't want that. And in fact, I think it's crucial to the movement for people not to become desensitized to the issue of missing and murdered indigenous people. So it's conflicting, because these stories are so often kept in the shadows, and more people should know about the horrors that are so real for so many indigenous people right now. More people should know how normal it is for Native kids to bury a sibling, and Native parents to bury multiple children. But then, if more awareness does cause people to become more desensitized to the issue, will that just make things worse? I know I'm overthinking it, and I know my podcast is not reaching millions or anything like that. But I just want you guys to know that this is something I think about, because I want you guys to know that I take this all very seriously. And as a longtime consumer of true crime content, I do realistically think that Selena's story could reach millions if a big enough platform picked it up. And back in the beginning, that was my goal for this podcast, to get enough attention on Selena's story that it would get in front of the eyes of someone from a larger platform, like Netflix or HBO, who could make Selena's story go viral. Because in the wildly popular genre of true crime, there has never been the story of a missing or murdered indigenous woman to truly go viral the way we've seen cases like Gabby Petito or Natalie Holloway. Now, it's no secret why stories like Gabby's and Natalie's go viral, but stories like Selena's don't. In fact, it's a phenomenon that has even been given a name, missing white woman syndrome. It shouldn't be this way, but it's just a fact that both law enforcement and mainstream media have always prioritized the lives and stories of white women. But for a story to go viral in the true crime world, it's not just about the victim being white. Again, it should not be this way. But what I've noticed, as a true crime consumer at least, is that True crime media loves to highlight stories of very specific types of victims. Typically, beautiful young women, and beautiful young women who cannot reasonably be victim-blamed. Girls like Selena, who, as I said way back in episode one, 
look like their life came straight out of a high school movie. Just like how the true crime industrial complex prioritizes the stories of white women over black and brown women, it also, in my opinion, prioritizes the stories of people who are thriving in life over the stories of people who are struggling. Now, as we know in Selena's story, the truth of her short life was not nearly as idyllic as you would think, just seeing pictures of her at football games and school dances. But that's exactly the reason why, in some ways, I think Selena's story needs to be the first MMIW story to go viral. Because I think her story would attract a lot of viewers, both due to the mysterious and, from a true crime lens, compelling circumstances, and also, just being honest, because we as the audience have been conditioned by the past few decades of true crime content to click on the story of the beautiful teenage girl who died mysteriously. The kind of girl whose bright, happy face smiling at you from her school photo might remind you of your own daughter, or your niece, or someone else you love, and whose untimely death you would not want to be handled like Selena's was. I think that would bring a lot of viewers to her story. And then, once you're engaged in Selena's story, I think it has the power to confront viewers with the reality of the genocide in a unique way. Because telling Selena's story in full, in some long-form way, you can't not talk about her siblings. You can't not talk about how Selena's mother had four of her five children pass away before the age of 25. And I hope that, if Selena's story does get that bigger platform, they don't make it seem like Selena's family is some sort of anomaly. But rather use the stories of Selena and her siblings as a jumping-off point to also talk about the bigger picture as far as what Indigenous people are up against right now. And back in the beginning, I thought I would be ending this episode by urging you to share, share, share Selena's story in hopes of getting that attention from a larger platform. And I'm not telling you not to do that, but I am just a lot more conflicted about awareness in general now than I was then. So, why am I here? Why did I come back and finish this podcast? Well, for the same reason that I'm planning to continue. Because families like Selena's want their loved ones' stories to be told. And I made promises to the families I interviewed that I do plan on keeping. And although it might seem contrary to the whole tone of the episode, I actually don't want to end this on a note of doom and gloom. I don't even want to end it on a note of true crime, if that makes sense. Because this is not true crime. Not to me anymore, and not to the families. This is the truth. This is the truth of an entire community, an entire history, and it should not be boiled down to only the sadness and the tragedy. Remember back in episode one, I told you about that quote that is attributed to Teddy Roosevelt, but that was first said by General Philip Sheridan, which is, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. Well, that mentality 
has remained pervasive in America for hundreds of years. And to only talk about indigenous tragedy without also talking about the indigenous beauty that is still very much alive in the world, or the indigenous history that a lot of us never learned in school. I feel like to only talk about the missing and murdered, it's not really moving the needle in the right direction, because it would just be shifting that pervasive narrative of the only good Indian is a dead Indian to the only Indian is a dead Indian. And that's not progress. There's a reason I started this episode, as I said earlier, with the part that would usually go at the end. The part where we take a moment to honor the life of each woman or girl we talked about. Not only because I wanted to talk about these women's lives before we talked about their deaths, but because I actually want to end this episode on a different note. Remember how I said earlier that I'm sorry that, not literally but figuratively, It was my white ancestors who came to Turtle Island and started all this destruction, and that it's my fellow white people who continue to perpetuate it to this day. Well, I feel like the best way to be the opposite of those white folks continuing to perpetuate the genocide is to do what good old Christopher Columbus should have done all the way back in 1492 which is to realize, acknowledge, appreciate respect, and honor all that we have to learn from Indigenous people. Not steal, but learn. I remember when I first started this podcast and reached out to Selena's Aunt Cheryl on Facebook, I was so surprised that she even responded to my message. And I was even more surprised when she agreed to a phone interview, and when she then spent three hours on that phone with me, sharing all about Selena's story and the bigger picture for Indigenous people in Montana. And that continued to happen. As I heard about other cases and reached out to other families, I was so surprised at how many people were willing to share with me, a total non-journalist and a white non-journalist at that, the heartbreaking and traumatic stories of their deceased relatives. I know that it's not an easy thing to do. And then, when I actually went out to the res, and in all the time I spent there, I continued to be floored with the generosity I was met with. Not only did people open up to me and trust me with the details of their loved ones' stories, people literally opened their doors to me. I found that it wasn't only the traumatic stories of their deceased relatives that people on the res were willing to share with me. It was everything. And I never expected that. I never asked for it, and to this day, I don't feel deserving of it. But as people on the res opened their doors to me, it opened my eyes, not only to the tragedy of the crisis of missing and murdered, but also to the beauty of the indigenous way. In white society, we don't treat sacred things as sacred. We don't look at ourselves as pieces in this huge jigsaw puzzle of life who are meant to be in harmony with other living creatures. We, or at least I, growing up in a majority white community, was raised to look at the world as if it's yours to bulldoze. And I'm not saying that my mom did that. She did the opposite, if anything. But 
Just what I see as white culture in general is very selfish. We are taught to just look after yourself, your money, your pets, and usually your immediate family if they play their cards right. And maybe we just lean on that because that's all we have. I mean, yes, we as white people have all the privilege, all the representation, all the power, etc., and I'm not trying to downplay that. But spiritually, our way of life is empty. We don't have, for example, family structures like Native families do, where your cousins are considered your siblings, and your nieces and nephews are considered almost the same as your own kids. And I'm not going to try to explain exactly how it works, because I know I'm not the person to do that, but something else I noticed on the res is that it was so common for people to, in addition to having a large biological family, also be adopted as members into other families. As white people, we don't have that either. Our way of life is much more every man for themselves. Now, of course, I'm not speaking for all white people or all Native people. I'm just speaking from my experience. But something else I noticed on the res, another beautiful part of Native life I observed and was invited to participate in, is powerful ancient culture that is still so vibrant and alive. And when I was invited to witness and learn the songs, dances, art, skills, traditions, and stories that have been passed down since pre-colonial times, I began to understand something that I never realized had been missing for my whole life. How to treat sacred things as sacred. Now, there are also beautiful parts of indigenous culture that it's important to acknowledge are born from hardship. For example, of course, we as white people also don't have the resourcefulness and resiliency that I have seen on the res. We also don't have the almost magical ability to use humor as a coping mechanism. But it's because we have never had to. We never had to figure out how to survive a genocide. We never had to have the ingenuity to figure out how to take inadequate food rations from the government and turn them into something as delicious as fry bread. And those aren't the kind of things I'm talking about at this moment. I'm not talking about the beautiful parts of indigenous culture born from oppression. I'm talking about the beautiful parts of indigenous culture that existed before the oppression and that indigenous people have kept alive to this day, despite many efforts to kill this culture off. Point being, even though white people are generally at a position of societal privilege compared to indigenous people, our way of life is completely backwards. And I think we have a lot to learn in almost every facet of life from the indigenous way. And not just we as individuals, but just think how much better the state of the country would be if our leaders listened more to indigenous voices. But of course, that's if and only if indigenous people want to share with us, which, as I said, has been my experience. And because so much was shared with me, 
I want to make sure I share something with all of you. It's not just the genocide and the tragedy plaguing Indigenous people that has been suppressed and swept under the rug. So has Indigenous beauty and wisdom. And it's important for both things to get the widespread attention that they deserve. So I'm going to end this episode with the only call to action I could think to give you. And it's actually not for the missing and murdered. I mean, don't get me wrong. There will be links in the show notes to the various support pages on Facebook, GoFundMes, Change.org petitions, and everything else that families have put out there. And I encourage everyone to support those efforts wholeheartedly. But also, I hope that after listening to this episode, you'll make an effort to support living Indigenous people as well. Because in all of the hopelessness, I think that this is the hope. Yes, there have been and continue to be so many lives lost in the genocide against Native Americans. But Indigenous people are very much still here. And while there might not be a law to support or a politician to vote for, or a hashtag to tweet that will really do much good for the missing and murdered right now. There are prominent Indigenous people who are doing the work to uplift their own communities. Not only activists, but also authors, artists, musicians, scholars, small business owners, content creators, educators, you name it. And so I think the best thing we can do as allies is to support them. Because... Not that I ever doubted this, but another thing that became clear to me on the res is that Indigenous people already have the strength, resiliency, support, and knowledge they need to make things better. And people on the res want things to be better more than anybody. What they lack is resources. And I think history has made it crystal clear that what Native people definitely do not need is outsiders suggesting solutions to problems that we don't even understand. And the last thing that's going to make any positive change for the Indigenous community is a white savior. So what I want you to do right now is open up Spotify and follow Native rappers Stenjadi and Superman. Also on Spotify, check out the podcast Indigenous Vision. It's one of my favorites. And if you have Facebook, go find the page for Blackfeet artist Lewis Still Smoking. He has a new show that just went up at the Paris Gibson Square Museum of Art in Great Falls, Montana, which I would love to go see because his work is absolutely gorgeous. Also, while you're there on Facebook, search up Stephanie Big Eagle and give her a like and follow as well. She's an incredible hand-poked tattoo artist as well as a shawl dancer, artist, and a published author, and I'm sure you'll love her content as much as I do. I first saw Stephanie Big Eagle in a video called For Our Sisters, which was created by Genevieve Salamone, an indigenous violinist and composer. So go follow her on socials as well, and check out her website, because she has created several beautiful videos to accompany her equally incredible original songs. Also, go give a like and a follow to The Spirits Garden, One Spirit, Fast Blackfeet, and Igluteca. 
I'll leave all those links in the show notes because it's organizations like the ones I just named who are actually boots on the ground, truly making efforts for Indigenous people. In fact, just last week, I reposted on Facebook a post from Igluteca. They're working on building shelters on the reservation to help people in need during these dangerous winter months, when people out on the street can easily freeze to death. So anyway, I reposted them, and they commented and said, quote, Thanks for sharing our post. We see ourselves as a small part of the solution to the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous people. Several missing people have stopped into our shelter, and we've been able to put them in contact with their families. By creating a safe place for Natives in crisis, we can save lives, end quote. And I totally agree, like 100% yes to all of that. As I said, it's organizations like Igluteca and others who are doing the real work to combat the MMIP crisis. So go give them some support and help spread the word for the work that they're doing. And if you never have before, read a poem by Joy Harjo or a book by Sherman Alexie. Watch Reservation Dogs and give those actors some love on social media as well. Or if you're in the market for some gorgeous handmade beaded jewelry, I'm going to list a few groups on Facebook where you can go to buy directly from Indigenous artists. And this might be kind of niche, but if you happen to be going to Glacier National Park for vacation this summer, or if you live in the area, be sure to visit ironshieldcreative.com and check out one of their cultural hikes. I could not recommend Iron Shield more. Leilani and Carrie Lynn, who lead those hikes, are phenomenal, and my experience participating was literally beautiful beyond words and something I will cherish for life. And I could go on, but links to everyone I mentioned and more Indigenous people to support will be in the show notes. So please take a minute to check out the work of these amazing Indigenous voices, both because I think that's the best way to try to be a part of making a positive change, and because you might learn something that you never would have been exposed to otherwise. And who knows, you might even learn something that will change your whole outlook on life for the better. And on that same note, I want to end this episode with one of those people I just named. The rapper known as Superman, who I mentioned, is not only an amazingly talented lyricist, musician, and performer, but he was also once a kid growing up on the Crow Reservation. And this song that you're about to hear called Why puts into words how I want to end this episode in a much better way than I ever could. Not to mention, the song is an objective banger. So, if you're listening to this right now, it means that I reached out to Superman and he gave me the okay to use his song. And to him, I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you, times infinity. As I said, this song says it better than I ever could. And I also think that hearing one of Superman's songs can bring us back to the reason we're all here in the first place. The girl that brought me to make this podcast and you to listen. Because Selena Not Afraid was also a kid on the Crow Reservation, just like Superman once was. So as you listen to his song, I want you to think about the potential future that Selena could have had. Not that she was going to grow up to become a rapper, but 
by all accounts, Selena was on the right track to beat the odds of a lot of the ugliness that surrounded her growing up and to create a great life for herself and to contribute beauty and indigenous greatness to the world like Superman has. So to close this out, let's also bring it back to the girl that brought us all here, Selena Not Afraid. The girl who should be a junior in college right now, living her best life, rather than the subject of a true crime podcast. So as you hear Superman's song, I figured what better way to close out this episode than to also hear the sound of Selena's voice for the very first time on this podcast. And now, as for me, this is where I'm going to say goodbye. And thank you. Thank you to every family member who has interviewed with me. Everyone who has shared a meal with me, or hosted me, or brought me into their world. And thank you to all of you for listening, supporting, and sticking with this podcast. And for caring. Always one man rich and another man poor Why we ain't satisfied, why we gotta have more Why your suicide rates on the rest so high Why I tell you the truth but you say don't lie Why is being a good father at an all-time low Why is it acceptable, yo, why I don't know Why she blame him and he blame her, it's useless Ask yourself this question, why you making excuses Why do parents gotta bury their kids Why we text and drive, not caring how scary it is Why you so hard to forgive and leave the past behind And if you did, then that's divine Why don't you help your brother when you see him fall Why do we act like God don't see it all Why do we call them black, them white, them Asians and use labels Now that's racism I don't want no Hawaii Why? 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 I don't wanna hold 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 Why is it innocent people locked up for life? While some people can't say nothing nice. Why do we always gotta question what all of it means? And why won't you follow your dreams? Tell me why. The night when you took my dad, why'd you let me see my grandpa cry? And tell me why. And why do you choose to hide, even though you was born to fly? And tell me why, and why don't we turn from all the hate? And why don't we learn from all mistakes? And why do I keep on wrecking these fat beats? And teachers don't make more than professional athletes. And why?